Trustee Hernandez. Here. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Shequin. Here. Trustee DeVries. Uh, Trustee Jensen. Here. We have a forum, but I don't have Trustee DeVries yet. So we have everybody. Trustee DeVries, can you hear okay? Is there a way to meet myself? Or no? You are the only meter. Trustees, if you want to mute from your keyboard, it's pretty easy. Just do Command Shift A. You can mute and unmute your microphone. What is, what is it again? Command Shift A. Okay, Trusty DeVries is connected. Trust. Oh, Trusty DeVries, can you hear me? Okay. I can hear it now. Okay. Okay, great. Well, good evening, everyone. I don't have much in the way of report. That's one of the I can be for president report. Um, obviously, we're in unprecedented times and uh, a unique circumstance here. I'll be by video. Um, so good to see you all. Um, good to be here. Um, and I'm gonna. I'm going to go ahead and just move us. Um, to the medical staff reports um, followed by the committee reports. Okay, nice. And before that, we're going to start with public comment. And I'm learning on the job how I'm going to do public comment in this in this format. So give me just a moment here. Yeah. Uh, so there are a couple of uh, requests for uh, public comment. So. Um, let me just see here. The first is uh, 
Farusa Farohi, F-A-R-R-O-H-I, and if uh, you would just give me a second, then... Uh, Hi, I'm, I'm here, Farisa. Okay, just one second, please. We should wait till they start her. Okay, we can do it. Okay. Okay. Yes, you go ahead. Okay, uh, my name is Bruce Farrelly. I'm the lead therapist for the Intensive Outreach Program. I've been working here for 19 years. I'm here speaking on behalf of our therapists. I'm also the outreach coordinator to the PS and Child Support and the Patients for IOP to provide the one of the reasons that I continue to work here and I've not been burned out is because I've seen for the past 19 years our program dramatically reduces psychiatric hospitalizations and generally saves lives. I'm going to ask you to pause for a moment. It looks like we have a technical difficulty where we can't really hear you. Okay. Is there a problem? Yes. Can you take this off? That's her microphone. But that's not all in the echo. I think it's just her internet connection. Okay. But she should be calling by phone. She might be better off dialing. Are you able to dial in by phone rather than it might be an internet connection? I can dial by phone. Okay. And then we'll find her. Okay. I don't know if she's going to go to the next speaker. Who hopefully has dialed in my phone. Lucy Colvin. Lucy Colvin. Okay. Can you hear me? I'm calling on the phone now. Okay, is that you? Just one second. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Can you hear me now? Yeah. She's fast. Hello. Can you do it? Yes. 
I can hear everyone can mute. I think that would help. Okay, so we all have to hang up our phones and go one at a time and not be in the same room. Okay, it's okay. Should we do something? Amy, what have you Greg Metz. Okay. Public speaker Greg Metz. Greg Metz. Okay, Greg Metz. Okay, we're going to give this another try. Is this better? This is fantastic. Thank you. I can hear. Can everyone hear? Yes. Okay, <laughs> thank you so much. I'm going to start. My name is Chris Foley. I'm the lead therapist at the Fairmont Intensive Outpatient Program. I've been working here for 19 years. We're here speaking on behalf of our therapists. I'm also the outreach coordinator to PES and John George, connecting eligible patients to our IOP to prevent rehospitalization. One of the reasons that I continue to work here and have not been burned out is because I've seen for the past 19 years how our program dramatically has um, reduced psychiatric hospitalization and literally saves lives. We're all aware of uh, we are all well aware of the tremendous pressure that the whole system is under addressing COVID-19, and we want to appreciate your time very much. Thank you, and your patience for dealing with all this. We're all um, here today from the Fairmont and Highland Intensive Outpatient Program to address the ongoing attempts by leadership to dismantle the intensive outpatient program, which will endanger the lives of our patients, especially during this current crisis when our patients need us the most. Well, we were told by our leadership that there's going to be what they're calling a reorganization of our IOP program into a wellness center and an outpatient clinic, and that it would not include our currently highly effective IOP programs. 
Our leadership has taken steps to shut down IOP without having consulted and met with us regarding this organization. We want you to know that whenever you hear the word reorganization, it means shutting down the IOP program. Calling it reorganization minimizes and obscures the true intention of leadership. We want to provide total transparency on what we are seeing on the front lines of serving the most vulnerable population. Last summer when we met with you about the endangerment of our IOP programs shutting down, you were able to understand the devastating impact closure would have on our patients. This board gave a directive to leadership to work in regular ongoing consultation with frontline staff with both IOPs to help them become stronger and more efficient and financially viable. Unfortunately, leadership did not do this. Instead, they have made decisions without consulting with us and independently made plans to turn our highly effective state-of-the-art intensive therapeutic programs into a wellness center and outpatient therapy clinic. Our own program patient data shows that our IOP prevents hospitalizations for those who have numerous hospitalizations before attending our program. Just based on a review of 30 patients and their rates of hospitalization before coming to our program compared to after shows a 79% reduction in psychiatric hospitalization. If projected out to the entire patient population of 115 of our patients, that would yield an approximate amount of $2.1 million in savings. Please refer to the data in your packets which elaborate on these important points. This so-called reorganization will not address the needs of patients coming out of John George and the patients struggling with ongoing multiple psychiatric symptoms. And again, this is a direct violation of what the Board of Trustees directed our leadership to do last summer. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Krista. Thank you. Reminder to everyone on the two-minute time limit. Hi. You Hi. Lucy Colvin. Lucy, I have you here. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Um, I've been working at a Fairmont Intensive Outpatient Program for over 20 years. And there's, uh, here's the thing that our staff really want you to know. We are working as essential workers right now on the front lines with a client population that is really stressed out. Um, and uh, some of them be compensating with shelter at home during coronavirus. And we are taking our work really seriously. We're going to our homes um, and afraid that we're bringing the virus back to our homes. But we want to work for our patients. It's really important to us. And that's why it's so hard right now to um, have these disturbing patterns of uh, Push towards closure of IOP, especially during this coronavirus time. There's uh, in the last couple of weeks, our leadership has done quite a few things that have caused us to feel uh, a, a sense of instability um, about our program, especially during this time. They've requested uh, from uh, the names of patients that have outside psychiatrists and case managers with the goal to discharge them from our program either now or immediately following this uh, crisis. 
They also told us they were going to start funneling clients from the behavioral uh, health clients from the wellness centers, wellness clinics to the IOP therapists here. And that would um, take our focus away from helping our needy clients right now. They're coming in in person if they're unraveling, and we're doing a lot of phone therapy support right now. Um, and this is, this is another indication that they're trying to switch our roles from um, our IOP therapy to do outpatient clinics uh, therapy. They've told us we can't use our own transportation right now um, and that we have to use lifts to get our needy clients who do come in. And the problem with that is we have no control over unregulated lift drivers and cars on the cleanliness or sanitation of their cars. We have all the control under our own vans and shuttles. And so we feel like this is, um, they're stating liability reasons, but we need to put the health of our clients first. And we feel like this is moving the transportation out of our program because they don't need it anymore for the wellness um, and outpatient center. Thank you. And so we're really, there's a big in the same budget that they did before, not expanding services. At Highland, they're stopping admissions, ending face-to-face -face visits there, taking away physical space, appears to be operating in a way that's leaving them open to be dismantled. We were recently asked to be on a committee to help create a proposal, but they said it would have to be done by the end of March, and then they never convened the committee. So we made our own proposal, which we have given to you. Um, we feel like, uh, like we are feeling like we're in uh, an environment where we're feeling uh, destabilized, um, it's demoralizing, um, has created uh, some fear about um, our, our the, the support of the, our uh, program that we have for our clients who need us so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We're here to ask you if you can put us on the board, uh, the agenda in April, um, so that we can talk about this more and also to please help us in any way you can to address our clients. Thank you. So, hi, so I'm, I'm Craig Metz. Um, can I go ahead? Go ahead, Craig Metz. Thank you. All right, so, um, so uh, I work at the Fairmont IOP as well. Um, I've been working with the, the severely um, mentally ill for about 15 years. Um, so there's been, so what we've been hearing from our leadership is that they'd like to um, move our clients out of IOP and turn our program into um, basically like a wellness center, like, a, like basically modeled after the county the county wellness centers, um, and we, we don't think that's a bad idea. We think that's that'd be a nice step down for our clients, but we don't think it replaces IOP. Um, we really think that we have a, a great program, a really strong program. We keep people um, from using services like like the police, the jail, emergency rooms, like hospitalization, um, and. We, we don't feel like the county system of care for the severe and persistent mental illness population is sufficient. Um, it's really a model of emergency interventions, case management, socialization. It doesn't really include um, actual mental health treatment like our program does. 
Um, we offer structure, we have cutting edge treatment, we pick up people and take them home, we provide psychiatrists and nursing. Um, and it's pretty clear to us that the, the county mental health, mental health model isn't working, is not serving the severe mental illness. And I think we can see that out in the community that, that we're, in a, we're in a real mental health crisis. And before the COVID, 19 crisis started, the governor was really focused on trying to address the mental illness crisis that's in our communities. Um, and it just, for us, it just seems insane to get rid of a program that is so effective and replace it with a system of care that's not really working right now. Um, and if you need any more proof, our, the county and the other case managers in the county refer clients that are decompensating to us. Um, Right, the wellness centers are not appropriate for high-level acuity clients, and we've included a bunch of uh, letters from uh, case managers in, in your packet. Um, and so, just in conclusion, for us, um, I'd really like to make—we're making a request um, for the sake of our patients. And that request is: we would we we want the AHS, um, we want the board of trustees to direct the AHS leadership to cease and desist all efforts to alter or close the IOP PHP programs. During this crisis especially, but in the long term too. I mean, if there's to be change to our, our program, um, let us, the frontline workers, be part of the conversation. Um, let's all work together to provide the care our clients need. Thank you for your time, we really appreciate it. Thank you, thanks for us. I have Tim Jordan next. Here's what I can do. So Tim is not identified as a participant, but we do have several phone numbers. So let me go ahead and mute them all, and then you can go ahead and ask again and see if it's one of them. Okay. I have Tim Jordan next. So, yeah, she's on That's not on my list. Tiffany So, Ariana is on. If you will try Ariana. Sure. Ariana Casanova. Sure, can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Hi, Ariana Casanova, CIU 101 Field Rep. Um, we had planned this before the COVID issue began, and so I apologize. I know we're in a crisis um, that we're bringing the IOP, but it's also happening at the same time. Um, there are some things I wanted to highlight that the group didn't highlight, and then I want to go into something else. There's, um, we need to work on EPIC. They can't do reimbursements for the program, so of course it's going to look cost, um, costly. It's not, um, there, there's no profis being received right now for those services. Um, this, this does help the John George 
they're a step down from John George, and they're a, a step above what some of the county services provide. And so I would really appreciate if we would be able to sit down and have a better assessment on how we could see where this all fits in and have additional um, budget needs fitted for what um, the wellness clinics want to do. The other thing I'd just like to say is that I know that the county is very willing to be supportive and helpful in these things, and so I'd really like us to work together to figure that out. And I think that's all I have for the IOP at both Fairmont and Highland. I did want to cover what we've all been experiencing the last two weeks and saying that it's been um, very difficult for um, 10 to 1 SEIU workers with the miscommunication and the inconsistencies that have been occurring. I do appreciate some of your managers, some of your leaders have done a really, really great job and others have fallen extremely short and continue to do so. Um, there's several incidences that I have um, moved up the chain that your leadership is aware of. We're sharing that with each other so that we have solutions. So when we do get to the numbers that we are anticipating, we actually can treat and do what is expected for our for communities and our communities of color in the East Bay. Um, it's very spotty and it's very concerning. And so you all can reach me. I know that you all have my email or cell phone. Happy to tell stories. I don't want to take up too much of your time since I know we're running a little bit behind, but thank you for your time. Thank you. Let's try to the mic went on. Okay, let's try Tiffany Paul again. Tiffany Paul. Katie Poloni. That's me. Okay. Okay, go ahead, Katie. Are you asking me to say something? This is Katie. Yes. Hi, uh, just to introduce myself and say what I want to say. <laughs> yes, two minutes for public comment, please. Go right ahead. Oh, I see. Okay, I'm sorry. I just got into the meeting. I didn't know we were in public comment. Okay, uh, my name is Katie Poloni. I'm here for a variety of reasons, all focused on preserving all treatment that we have for the seriously mentally ill. I am a mother with a son with schizophrenia. I am a member of FASME Families Advocating for the Seriously Mentally Ill, and I'm on the board of directors of East Bay NAMI. Um, I am here in support of keeping the IOP program functioning, not only through the COVID-19 crisis, but on. We need more of services like this, not less. Um, as far as I have been looking for something like this, both for my son years ago, I did not know it existed. And now for folks that I work with, I'm also a family advocate for an IHOP team. Um, I am glad to have found out that it's available and I will be hoping to make use of it in the future. Please do not terminate um, a program that's very important to those we work with and that we love and that we live with. Thank you.
Thank you. Patricia Hackamack. Patricia Hackamack. Oh, can you speak up? Patricia, are you there? So I'm going to move us on the agenda because I don't, it doesn't seem like we can hear any other public speakers um, and I've called them all, but we can uh, take public comment back up at the end of the meeting and if you could please send a message to the host in the interim so that we know that you're still on standby. So I would like to hand it over to Dr. Bouquet for um, both the medical staff reports and then move into, moving into um, the first committee report, which is QPSC. Hello, this is Dr. McCat, uh, the, the chair of the QPSC. Um, we, uh, given the adaptations for today's meeting, we made some uh, uh, a couple of pivots on this. So, this of staff did not actually uh, present a report to me, but I've tried to touch base uh, with each of them. Um, I'm going to review a little bit uh, in just a few minutes, less than four minutes, two articles we discussed in QPSC today, and, and hopefully that can provide some insight to what I believe 
Many of us who work with this organization, including the chief of staff, are feeling about this. The two articles we discussed were, uh, the first article was how to motivate your team during crunch time. And uh, this is included in the QPSC packet. What a nice discussion, albeit virtually, uh, in our in our Zoom uh, meeting for QPSC. Uh, I think no, no one can argue that this is crunch time for this organization like we've never seen before. Uh, this article gave a, a to cut to the chase, had a couple of do's and a couple of don'ts, and I think uh, we should all be mindful of these things uh, because leadership goes from the top all the way down to the bottom, and I think these are lessons for all of us. I'm going to review some of them, and I apologize to the QPSC if this is redundant for you. Do's. Do check your emotional energy. You can't motivate your team if you're not engaged and excited. Do break up the work into manageable chunks so that overall deliverables aren't so intimidating. We are uh, facing something that has never been more intimidating uh, than ever, in my opinion, for our organization. So I think that's a, that's a great thing for us to do is to break this work up into smaller chunks. Do encourage your team members to structure their work days in ways that maximize their productivity. Everyone uh, in this organization is being pushed to the brink uh, and the limits of, of work that they've never seen before, and the psychological stressors cannot be underplayed. And I encourage all of us uh, who are leaders and all of us who are followers to, to be thoughtful about that, about how we can preserve ourselves within the context of giving to the organization. The don'ts uh, from this article, don't be dishonest or sugarcoat matters. Acknowledge to your team the burden and sacrifices involved. Everyone in this organization is making, uh, carrying burden and everyone in this organization is making sacrifice. And I think it's important for us as the board um, uh, to be fully empathetic to that, which I know this board is. Don't, let's don't ignore obvious problems if you see that someone is struggling, reach out, ask what roadblocks need to be removed. And I submit to our, our board members, that is part of our job here is to determine what roadblocks need to be removed for this organization's success. And the last don't, don't disappear behind closed doors. I think it's the kiss of death for any organization for, for their leaders to be behind closed doors. We, the royal we, all need to be accessible and visible to our team. That's that article, um, uh, how to motivate your team during crunch time. The second article that we discussed is how boards can take the long view. And again, I know this is trying to summarize for my colleagues, the chiefs of staff, but I think that I think they would probably uh, be attuned to this. Uh, for the board, uh, please look at this article because it's sort of a guide. It's a guidepost for us. And it comes down to two major domains of activity for us. For caring for our workforce. I think um, nothing is more important right now than caring for our workforce. How can we uh, do the hard work if, if we're not caring for our, if, if, if we are under struggle and under burden? Uh, our, our, our community, our patients uh, need us. And second, surge capacity planning. I know that surge capacity planning is happening. I know how busy that in-demand center is. And uh, I want us to, to, my hope is that, that we can use feedback from all 
<clears throat> parts of this organization to to help be the eyes and ears for this organization. And it is my hope that this organization has the wisdom to 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 take that feedback and 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 use it appropriately. So those were our, our two articles uh, on the chair report. And um, I'm uh, again, my apologies to the QPSC. I'm going to be uh, reiterative on this, but I, I think it's an important story, and I uh, I think the clinical stories matter to all of us. Um, I'm on, I, as some people may or may not know, I'm a gastroenterologist here at, at, at Highland. And last evening, uh, I was called to uh, uh, assist with the placement of a feeding tube with one of our COVID-positive patients who's intubated in the intensive care unit. And um, going through that moral and ethical exercise of putting oneself in, in harm's way was a really, really important one uh, for me personally. And, and what I say is uh, I, I, that doesn't make me a hero. You know, in, in fact, maybe alternatively is uh, I, we, have, we have frontline doctors, nurses, EVS staff here who don't have the benefit of knowing whether the, that patient is COVID positive. I actually knew that that patient was COVID positive. And, and in my assessment, I, I knew that I was going to be going in on a room for someone who's COVID positive. Other, other, other members of our staff may not have the benefit of that. So, uh, as, uh, as I discussed in the QPSC, um, I was afraid last night. I'm not, uh, you know, contending with your fear is something that, that we all who work here, who are on the front lines, are doing on a daily basis. Um, I was afraid for my children. I was afraid for my wife, who's a doctor here. And, and in the end, we had the discussion, my wife and I, who's on the COVID response team. And, and we looked at each other and we said, this, was the, this is the right thing to do. Uh, so we helped each other and I went to work this morning with the plans to do it. But, you know, as, as fate would have it in happenstance, that feeding tube found its way to the right place without me. So my team didn't need to actually go in. I did not need to go into that room. But when I was there, I was watching an ICU nurse working diligently hard in the care of that patient. And uh, he was, Eric was just doing an awesome job. And I, I, want, I want everyone who's on this uh Zoom to know that that, that that work is happening here at San Leandro, at Alameda every day, especially in our front lines, our emergency room staff, uh, our floor staff. And it, uh, what I tell my own staff, I think two things will help guide us through this. And even those, those, those may not be perfect. And that's being calm because being calm allows us to be rational and it allows us to be methodical, which I think is essential to this. And, and perhaps more importantly, in follow-up to the articles, to be out of your way empathetic to the person who's seeing that patient. When, when, a, when a staff is, being, is picketing uh, uh, for themselves or, or they're afraid for, for all of us as leaders and non-leaders to be empathetic to them, I, I think that will help us navigate uh, 
navigate this, uh, this thing we've never confronted before. So uh, with that, I, I, I hope that that uh, uh, summarizes some of the uh, intent and content of my, my chiefs of staff and my other colleagues who work here. And with that, I'll, I'll close my report. Thank you, Dr. Bouquet. Were there members of the medical staff who wanted to chime in or add any anything additional? Okay. So it looks like we may be able to um, have another public speaker now, Tim Dreeby. Tim, are you on? Tim Dreeby? Can you speak up? I am. There we go. Can you hear me? Yes. You can hear me. Yes. Ooh, all right. Thank you. Um, I come to speak here um, before the board today in solidarity with the staff at Fairmont who have done a wonderful job documenting what has transpired with um, the IOP clinics. They have outreached and shared their work at Highland um, with myself and a number of our, my colleagues, and we've reviewed and agreed very much with the points they made. I've been working in IOP for 16 years and over time have learned to understand and optimize the work that gets done in the community um, by our participants. Um, they meet each other where they are at and they support each other in learning to face and heal the most from very serious mental health challenges. Most of our participants deal with significant effects of poverty, housing, scarcity, a very harsh history of receiving services in jails, crisis centers, and they need to make sense of their life journey. Increasing over, increasingly over the years, I have learned to be more of a student of what they go through than a teacher. The shelters, board and care homes, jails, hospitals, and streets are hard realities to navigate and still keep your mental health strong. If I had to deal with these things, um, I must say I would be very stuck and unhappy. However, they have taught me that recovery and healing requires time, safety, structure, empathy, and dare I say love. These are the foundations of our community and the community continues to have loyal participants who depend on it for wellness. However, when I think back over the last year, the primary experience that plays in my mind is loss. This started out with word that we were going to be closed and merged with Fairmont. We lost our clinical managers and four newly arrived energetic caring, caseload carrying therapists. Then we lost our manager. We were told this was natural attrition and this, that this right-sized us. We know in many cases people left because they were afraid of impending layoffs. Still at that time, we had to work really hard to keep it together for our participants who did decline in number, but remain spirited and able to avoid the traumatizing revolving door of hospitals. I have learned a lot about 
how to serve participants and optimize healing. Like the first line of the design proposal that Fairmont is submitting says there is no one size fits all treatment. And I do think there can be improvements made to the model, like utilizing peer counselors and launching more peer participants off into peer resources. In fact, in spite of the losses of the last two years, we have brought peer counselors onto the unit. And this has been extremely exciting to have them bring local speakers for trainings and outreach. Many of our clients have gone to best now um, to train as peer counselors themselves. One is now interning with us to grow, interning with us now and her growth is phenomenal. I know Fairmont likewise has a lot of success with their TOPS program. Indeed, there are many facets to our community and although it may take time, recovery and community wellness has a strong place with us. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Okay. And Allison Monroe next. Hello, my name's Allison Monroe. I'm the mother of somebody who's severely mentally ill. And I've had a lot of experience with different parts of the system. And it's almost certainly going the wrong way to take services away from the seriously mentally ill and mix that population in with those who don't have serious mental illness. One size does not fit all, like Mr. Dreeby says. Our family members need help. They need patient, you know, labor-intensive help navigating the system. They're at risk of homelessness, of being incarcerated, of taking drugs, of just doing the wrong thing, of not having their benefits lined up. They need all the help they can get, and this is a good use of our time and money. And I can't understand why they want to cut a program like this. It saves lives. You know, people, different people in the county have saved my daughter's life over and over again. And I think these people need to be left alone to do their work and be supported in their work. It sounds like a great program. And that I have submitted a short letter about this and also a statement from East Bay NAMI and Alameda County FASME, of which I'm a member. And I hope you guys read the statements and preserve all the help you can for the seriously mentally ill, for people that cycle in and out of John George. Those are the people that need help. Their mental illness is serious. It's a threat to their existence. And they especially need help navigating now when nobody knows what the right thing to do is. Nobody knows what's ethical. Nobody knows what's prudent. You know, nobody knows what's a smart thing to do to stay alive in the next couple of months. Let them work, okay? Thank you. That's all I had to say. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, so I think having no further public speakers, I'm going to move us to the Audit and Compliance Committee, Trustee Jensen. Trustee Jensen. Mm -hmm. 
Trustee Jensen. Can you unmute your uh, Yeah, I have, I have no report. No report. Okay, Trustee Shequin, Finance Committee. There we go. Well, um, of course, uh, Finance Committee is always looking at the systems, finances, and retrospect. And uh, just to state the very obvious, the world changed. So um, I don't have a lot to say um, about the future. And I, and I imagine um, even our CFO is struggling to try to figure out where we might go in the future. But I will say a few things about report out of the committee um, that uh, we are on track with the budget expectations, uh, the EBITDA number is actually positive. Um, as of the end of January, the projection though, uh, forecast for the end of the year, assuming nothing changed, and it did, uh, would be that we'd be a half a point off on uh, our EBITDA. So uh, I, um, I think, you know, we just got to stay crystal clear on the basic foundation, financial foundation of the system. And um, at the same time, try to figure out how to plan for the future. It's going to be quite a challenge. So I wanted to also point out if I could let me get my, get the right page here, page uh, 46 in the um, packet. Uh, is a, a report sheet on the cash collections. And again, uh, this, uh, there's some good news here. This has been a real heavy lift, uh, particularly for finance. I think uh, this is where a lot of us see uh, our new CFO, Kim Miranda, doing a terrific job of um, taking ownership, quite frankly, and really uh, pushing her team, uh, team members towards uh, working through incredible uh, numbers of barriers and problems uh, that, that are coming as a result of moving to Epic. Um, this was all predictable. We predicted it. We assumed it was going to happen. And it is pretty, uh, it has been, the previous reports have been pretty um, daunting when you look at how far behind we are from the norm. Uh, but the good news is uh, staff reported, Kim reported to us since the last meeting, significant progress um, in a number of areas. You could just see uh, a real move forward. There's a lot of work to do still. And as uh, uh, our CFO explained to the committee, uh, you know, you, it's so, sort of like low-lying fruit. You take care of the uh, easy issues and then they just get harder and harder and smaller and smaller. So the uh, number of issues to resolve are, there are a lot more of them and you know, there's just less to gain once you solve them. And they're in, in, in many cases uh, pretty complicated. So that's something for us to continue to watch. I mean, it, this is an incredible challenge for staff um, to do, to respond to the current crisis and what it's going to bring at the same time, finish a stand-up on the EPIC system, uh, particularly as it relates to uh, the uh, collection of, of uh, revenue. And then uh, 
finally, let me see if I can find the right page. This is, I'm learning how to do this with a board packet. Um, again, page 50 in the packet has the forecast model. And I just want to make a general point um, and encourage trustees to ask questions about some of the new reporting. I think, uh, and I think other committee members have expressed this as well, that uh, uh, Kim has made some very nice changes in the way she is uh, putting reports together, but there are changes. So if you're not on the committee, it may be um, a task for you to try to uh, figure out what, what uh, a report uh, is really trying to say. So I'd encourage you to engage with uh, staff, with, with Kim in particular on this. Um, she is very willing to help uh, help you understand how that's working. So the forecast structure is much less uh, cumbersome than what we used to do in the past, gets right to the point. And as I said before, we're uh, expecting to be a little behind on the EBITDA. That's again, if nothing had changed. Um, so let's see the last, I guess that was my last point. And we'll hear a lot from staff, I'm sure. Any questions from trustees? Okay. So I know we have written reports, but Kim, did you want to chime in at all? Okay, Kim, you've been unmuted now. Did you want to chime in at all? Yes, I did. Thank you. I'm trying to figure out how to unmute myself. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, I just thought I'd make a few comments just to add on to to the uh, previous comments made. Yes, um, we uh, were behind in January, 2.5 million of EBITDA. It was uh, mostly driven off of net patient service revenue, 1.3 million of it. Uh, and again, that relates back to EPIC and also some um, volumes falling short of plan. Purchase services are, is another area there. It, we're over because we're hiring a lot of elbow support to, to stabilize EPIC. And also we hired folks to collect our legacy AR. Uh, and we didn't uh, necessarily budget enough for that expense. And I think it's worth noting year to date though, um, that our EBITDA is actually 24.8 million better than budget, so EBITDA is a reflection of our cash flow, so our cash flow up till this point in the year has uh, been strong, and that's being driven off of things we've talked about, the retro payment from the county for the John George Behavioral Health, that was $23 million. and the old waiver for FY08, that was $11 million for a total of 34 and then we've got the negative offset of $9.3 million for the net patient service revenue and the HPAC capitation. And again, purchase services really makes up the bulk of it. So I think that kind of gives you a good idea of where we are for the month and year to date. I do want to talk about what does keep me up at night. 
Uh, obviously, the epic stabilization does. Um, we are slowly making up ground. Um, I don't. I think it was covered pretty well. Uh, January was a great cash month for us, and if I look at today's report, we're still improving. Our. I'm just going to talk about cash, so I don't spend too much time here. But our uh, HB or the technical side of the house made up a whole week of cash and that's 9.6 million just to, to give you the magnitude and on the pb side they made up um 1.2 weeks which is 1.5 million in cash um uh, we did also manage to get a lot more claims out the door about 6.8 days worth or 62.6 million so those are uh, and that's for hb pb was uh, not as much it was mil a million but still, those are still great improvement. We're actually up to where Epic might call us a bottom performer, but we're still making progress. So that I is I'm very happy to report. And then the the probably just two other comments. One relates to the cash flow. Um, we cannot forget that we owe from these prior year program and that money will be recouped. And if you'll all recall in the old format, it was clearly laid out that we had about $175 million due from these old programs. Um, that situation has not changed. And all we've done is kick it down the road, if you will, to the next fiscal year. And I think that I will um, make another change in our in my reporting to not just talk about that in the letter. I think I need to call it out in the presentation because I don't want anyone to forget that we have this lingering liability. And my final comment would relate to the budget process. Um, you know, this year we are trying to just stabilize post-EPIC. Uh, obviously, we need to deploy initiatives for continuous improvement. And what we've uh, set there is to achieve the calendar 2019 cash flow, which is probably around 35 to 40 million and a over 3.0% EBITDA. So, uh, having said that, it's really about being more inclusive, giving better training and support for people, and not making major changes in the budget. But having said that, uh, we still have these prior year recruitments that we need to pay back, and we're not going to do it out of a one year's uh, cash flow. So that is what uh, really keeps me up. Any questions from anyone? Yeah, I have a question, um, and maybe I need to wait for the next presenter, but I'm just worried about um, our continued model seems to be that we're always, you know, if I look at page 64, that we continue to have a gap between patient revenue strategies and what we actually have. And so I'm, I'm really appreciative, Kim, that you talked about these um, liabilities and that those need to be, you know, placed in the budget. All of that is making sense to me. But I wonder, um, 
you know, given everything that we know uh, is now going to be uh, a new set of costs related to fighting COVID-19 and the continued sort of, you know, looking at this, what is our actual versus our goal? We seem to be off and have we set too high of a goal? Do we need to readjust what we think we're going to produce in these, um, you know, projected revenue streams? So I wonder if you could speak to that. Sure. Yeah, we're, we are reporting in arrears. So this is as of January. There have, you know, we didn't know about what was going to happen sure. with COVID-19. Uh, we also had joint commission in here. Um, so there have been some significant changes. Mm -hmm. uh, we will be providing an updated report. Uh, we post uh, next Friday mm -hmm. for next finance committee. And in that report, we're giving uh, an update. Um, it's not all bad. Um, uh, we do think that there will be we know actually, uh, we're, and we're fairly certain we will have um, uh, money from the CME, which is one of the items I talk about in my report as a contingency. We actually think that we are going to get that, which is going to help. It's not going to change our situation drastically, but I, I do agree with you. There's a lot that has changed, and we do need to provide you an update, and we will be doing that very soon. And, and if I could just close my, my comment by saying I'd rather that be that we just be very realistic about our projections. Um, you know, when I looked at page 64, it's the patient revenue enhancement strategy. I get what we're trying to say. I get that we want to push ourselves to try and achieve certain things. But I'm pretty sure this is like the third or fourth time that I've seen a report where we're just not meeting what we project. And I'd rather that we be more realistic. And if it isn't doable, let's stop making projections that are impossible to achieve, right? And so uh, I know that that requires a lot of discipline to really look at this and ask ourselves, you know, did we do everything possible to meet those projections? But if we're constantly missing them, I, I, I think then they become fantasy. And so it, it becomes one of those issues where, um, you know, we're constantly beating ourselves up when maybe we need to re, really look at this and ask ourselves, maybe what we've got now is, is what we can do and not try to, um, you know, hurt ourselves thinking that there's some magic solution that's going to come in and uh, help us achieve some of those numbers. So that's that's one of my concerns. Thank if, you, Kim. If I could speak to that issue real quickly. Um, uh, that's an excellent point, um, Trustee Hernandez. That actually came up in committee. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, a nice exchange with staff on that. I think uh, one of the conclusions that I have, and, and you know, I, I don't have enough information to say this definitively is that we are um, very hopeful people sometimes. <laughs> and um, if you remember when we, we really struggled during the summer to come up with a budget, um, in fact, we delayed the approval of the budget in order to 
um, try to find new opportunities, I think, quite frankly, and avoid painful cuts. Um, so staff did, uh, and I, I knew it at the time that, you know, staff did a very deep dive to try to find pennies in the couch. And, um, you know, I think th they even said to us at the time, you know, look, some of these things are not a uh, slam dunk. And sure enough, as you see from those reports, I appreciate you reading those because I, I, I asked for those reports because I, I think we need to, uh, as an organization, have integrity about um, strategies we have, uh, analyzing how we uh, are doing towards strategies. And it's, um, you know, it, I, I don't think it's something to be ashamed of, actually. I think it's just uh, an opportunity to learn and move forward. And I hear you're saying the same thing. Uh, I'll say this too, as chair of the finance committee, what, one of the things I've noticed is uh, we have, um, we're a, a village full of sacred cows. We have all sorts of things that uh, we love. We know what we love. We love everything and we don't want to cut anything. And um, I think we're rapidly getting to the point where, um, you know, there isn't going to be enough uh, savings that we can find um, in the couch. We're going to have to actually look at lost leaders, things that we love, because I, you know, I don't think anything we're doing is, is, uh, doesn't have some value some way. It's just a question of whether we can afford to do it. And um, that has to be um, a principle for us, even in the middle of a crisis, as we move towards a budget process um, in the middle of a crisis. We have to keep that in mind. And and that's on us, uh, the trustees. I think it's it's not fun. I mean, none of us, all of us, I, I've gotten to know all of you and you're like me. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this for the community and I know you all are too. And yet uh, we've got things that are important, but we can't fund them. So I'm just sort of alluding to what we're going to be facing down I think in in this 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 year probably in the next several months. Thank you. Kim, I had a question, um, Chair. Is that okay? Um, uh, the accounts receivable from the legacy vendors, and I was wondering, do this is like the third month in a row? I think that you know, as you as these accounts receivable lend in. The, uh, the chances of recouping them get lower and lower. Is there some risk that these vendors take on when they, when, we, when they have a contract with us that if we don't get, collect as much as they, you know, we, we have been promised that there's some level of risk sharing or anything like that? I wanted to know. Yeah, our current arrangements with these vendors uh, do not put them at risk. We basically pay them based on their collections. Um, uh, they, we, we did these like about a year ago. Um, they are behind in, in their collections. I will, or I'm preparing a report now to update everybody uh, at the next meeting. Uh, so assuming everything comes together, okay, I'll have that ready to load next Friday. But um, the, the news is they haven't done as well as we had hoped. We were slow getting the inventory to them. 
so they, it was a little aged or a little more aged than we had planned when we gave it to them. But um, I am a little disappointed in the performance thus far. Kim, will you be able to bring back what is sort of, um, so, so the entire 175 million at this point is still potentially um, billable or, or has some of that already aged out? So the 175 million that I spoke of earlier doesn't have anything to do with the AR. The 175 million relates to the old waiver recoupments that go back from like 2015, the um, FQ settlement that we we are still in, we're trying to settle it, but it's got about a $40 million uh, liability on the books. And then our cost reports for Medi-Cal that show that we owe about $30 million back. So those are recoupments from the prior period. But you are also correct that when I reported a few months ago that the legacy vendors were behind on bringing in the cash, um, so that is still also a true statement, but it's not in the 175 million range. So uh, one one of the issues here is that we're going to need some significant relief uh, from the net negative balance, and we're going to have to sit down with the you know with the auditor and the county administrator and kind of go over where we are and ask for some sig significant. Uh, adjustment in that uh, limit that we have right now. Yeah, and Kim, just to kind of wrap up the, the old AR, will, will, will you be able to bring back sort of the amount and then what is um, still billable or what has aged beyond the point that we can recoup it? Maybe at subsequent meetings, we don't have that now. Yes, I will bring that back. Absolutely. Yeah, and then, well, and, 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 oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, whoops. Okay, sorry. Uh, hi, everyone. Wait. Let's try. Um, okay. Okay, I think it's working. Um, yeah, hi, everyone. Um, we will do uh, what you just asked for, Trustee Avalada. What we'll try to do is put it in the context of. Uh, uh, what is our historical AR performance? Because you know, uh, uh, there's always some degree of your AR that's uncollectible. Uh, uh, so not to expect that all the AR that we put out to the vendors would be collectible either. Uh, but there is, I, I think, um, as Kim is uh, highlighting here, a level of performance thus far that's not what we uh, wanted it to be. So we should give you that context and uh, where the performance is and, and maybe even a forecast, um, uh, which would be an estimate, but uh, a sense of where of the available dollars where it is in terms of its age status, uh, what would be the likelihood of what we could continue to recoup from, from that AR. Thank you. Thank you. Other trustees, questions? comments on finance? I, I just uh, would like to second what's been said before. I think having uh, Kim on board has been a godsend and kind of addressing a number of the financial issues that we have. I wanted to second that the reporting reports are so much 
clear, at least for my my uh, non-financial mind, I can understand them much better. I also wanted to know that hopefully in the coming week or so, I've been um, analyzing the relief package that's come, and I've been like, uh, but from a different angle, um, but to see what hospitals, what what might be there for public hospitals. So hopefully we'll know a little bit more about like what that, how that will shake out for us. So um, look, look forward to hearing about that. That's great. And from what I understand that if, if all goes well, those funds will be deployed pretty soon from the uh, Congress relief package. Um, Can you hear me? Ah, yeah. okay, great. Thank you. Uh, we're, we're also looking forward to um, uh, being able to share that information with you. The, the funding, as we know right now, is a combination of two things. Um, there are new dollars, and those dollars are to be sort of differentiated based off of how uh, they'll be um, uh, purposed and released to uh, hospitals, and we're hoping that happens relatively quickly. Uh, and then the others are. Uh, cuts that we were anticipating, uh, like the dish cuts you've heard us talk about, uh, and others like uh, the Medicare sequestration 2% uh, billing that's also expected to uh, uh, be forestalled, and uh, both of those will help us in terms of uh, net patient services uh, revenue for the organization and supplemental. So uh, we'll, we'll know more um, in the coming week or so, and we'll be able to provide that um, detail to you when we have it. Can you hear me? Yeah, just real quickly, I, I want to add that, uh, and I'm doing this in my own organization, uh, there's a lot of uh, financial opportunities in the middle of a crisis for those who are doing essential services, like uh, Alameda Health System. Uh, but the, the problem financially, uh, and again, I just want to create a little discipline here for us, is that these will be uh, one-time uh, infusions uh, and uh, very necessary and helpful <laughs> in the moment, but uh, not not uh, we need to be very careful about not uh, moving. And I'm not worried about staff on this. I just think that it's just the frame uh, that a lot of our stakeholders will have about hearing that medical Medicaid billing uh, revenue will go up for a short period of time. For example, could give people the uh, sense that. <laughs> there's a greater infusion of dollar revenue that will be ongoing when it's just temporary. So uh, I appreciate you saying that, uh, Trustee Sugwin. I think that's uh, absolutely the case. Um, thank you, we're good. Um, the other thing too is the timing. Yeah, we, we expect the funds to flow quickly. Uh, but quickly is relative in uh, bureaucratic terms. Uh, and for us, as Kim noted earlier, we are can, can you guys hear me well? I just want to make sure you can hear me well. Okay, cool. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're already facing a cash crunch uh, uh, situation. And so the timing of that relative to 
the availability of cash, particularly as we are seeing significant expenditures to ramp up and uh, make provisions to uh, prepare for COVID or actually respond now and prepare for COVID-19 uh, is speak up. <laughs> I'm pretty loud. Um, I can't speak up. I'll be yelling in the room. <laughs> can, you, can you all hear me? Yeah. 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 So it's the volume. It's not me. I'm clearly quite loud right now. You sound fine. So. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what to do here. Hold on. You're all good, man. Oh no! Wait, hang on. With this. Oh, that's the speaker. Okay. okay. All right. Can you hear? It? Can people hear me better? Yes. All right. Uh, I'll be brief. Uh, but it was really just to say, yeah. Um, I think it's important for the trustees to know. This thing will take time. We are already in a cash crunch uh, and the timing of supplemental payments that we need now, as well as uh, expenditures that we're incurring now is likely to produce a, uh, a timing issue as well as an overall funding issue. And Trustee Shikwen uh, would say and has said in finance committee too, uh, that a lot of expenditures with a lot of uh, staying, staying in place, local sales tax is going down. Uh, or we expect that it is going down. We don't. We haven't gotten reports yet, but uh, you know that we rely uh, fairly significant on Measure A. Seventy-five percent of it goes to us, so we're uh, going to be very cautious about uh, monitoring what's happening with um, uh, Measure A or, um, uh, tax receipts um, uh, to see what that does to impact our budget in this year alone. So while there may be new dollars, there are some other supplemental funding that could could very easily be. Um, uh, drying up or or, or dissipating uh, that will create a challenge for us as well. Good point. Okay. Any other trustees with comments or questions regarding finance? Good. Okay. Move us to item D4, Alameda Hospital Seismic Planning Ad Hoc Committee update. Trustee Peterson. Uh -oh. Sure, we, we, we uh, did not have a meeting uh, this month because of the virus. And uh, we're, we've, had a, we've had a series of uh, three meetings. Uh, we're, uh, we've had presentations by a number of external uh, groups. Kaufman Hall study was one of them. Uh, we also had uh, a, a presentation by Radcliffe Architects and we're uh, in the process of uh, looking at kind of finalizing our our initial uh, report, and um, hopefully we'll have something to present to the board of trustees, uh, if not April by May. Um, Louise, did you have anything you wanted to add to that, Trustee Jensen, Energy? I'm sorry, Tracy. I have nothing to add. Um, Luis stepped out of the room for a second. Uh, oh, there he is. Uh, did you, we were doing the Alameda seismic update. Did you want to provide any sort of update on the status of the project or, or anything? Uh, sure. I, I can provide a status on, on the project itself. As, as, as everyone knows, we, um, you know, with the current circumstances, we have. Uh, scaled back the, the contractors and the, the, the work effort that's happening in the facility. 
Uh, we're still trying to continue with some of the administrative tasks to keep the project moving forward as we obviously have, you know, those timelines and milestones that we've communicated in the past. Equally, we've been in contact with the state recognizing that uh, due to the public health order that was issued, uh, many of the contractors have equally sent their workers home. And so uh, where we're managing that, we did complete uh, the, the, the one of the make ready pro uh, projects, which was the occupational therapy. We, uh, space, which is what's going to then trigger the move of the EBS department, uh, allowing us to continue to proceed with the kitchen work itself. So uh, there, there was great progress being made, uh, unfortunately, due to, due to current circumstances, things have slowed down a little bit. We're continuing to move forward with, as I said, the administrative portion of the project to hopefully continue to advance uh, some effort, uh, but uh, for now it really has come down to a uh, a little bit of a screeching halt, and so we'll, we'll continue to manage that very closely. Uh, we have not received confirmation or any any type of feedback from the state based on the or the communication we've had with them, letting them know that hey, we want you to just know that uh, our our plan that we submitted under the AB twenty one ninety, obviously that's going to be impacted, and those timelines may be affected uh, depending on how long this this uh, situation continues. And so we're we're tracking that very closely. Uh, but as of right now, that's where we stand with the project itself. Okay. Trustees, any questions? All right. I actually have a point of order. I was just going to ask if we would return to the agenda or if the agenda has been amended since we didn't do one or items one or three. Can you repeat the question, Trustee Jensen? Items A was medical staff reports, item C was the CEO report, and I um, don't believe those things were yeah. included. Yeah, but I, I figured you were yes. on the five. No, so, so, okay, so my apologies. So the medical staff report, I moved to after my report and then went into the committee report, and then we can go to the CEO report um, now, now that all the committee reports are completed. So I did go a little bit out of order because Dr. Bouquet sort of combined for us the medical staff uh, report summary and then went into QPSC. So we can go, um, so we've done B, A, D, and now we'll go to item C, the CEO report. No, just now. I just need to. You're fine. Yeah. Uh, so you can hear me? Okay, thank you. Uh, good evening, uh, trustees. Uh, I'm, I'm a little sensitive to the time, um, uh, and so I also know that we have uh, really had our colleagues. Uh, our staff uh, prepare some updates to give to you both on the two major things obviously happening this month, the um, follow-up from a joint commission uh, um, uh, report as well as uh, COVID-19 to give you a good sense of uh, the work that's going on there. But let me just say um, a couple of things that are mostly about uh, the latter, about COVID-19. Um, I felt like I should give you, in addition to some of the uh, email updates I've been providing, just a good pulse of the organization, um, sensitive actually uh, to uh, some of the uh, comments of the um, 
the uh, literature that Trustee um, uh, Bouquet went through earlier and really want to just lift up and honor really the, uh, the resilience, uh, the commitment, um, uh, and really just uh, outstanding, I would say, heroism of all our staff uh, in the organization. Uh, it's just been nothing short of um, uh, inspiring to be able to walk around the organization, engage with staff on all shifts. I'm, I apologize. I, I was here till like 5 o'clock yesterday or this morning. Um, so I'm a little bit uh, tired, um, but we have been walking around uh, um, talking to staff and having some really uh, invigorating discussions, uh, bi-directional. Uh, people are, I, I think it's important to say, people, there's a degree of fear and concern uh, that people have, some of which you heard earlier, for their own um, uh, safety and that of their families. Uh, they are certainly feeling um, uh, the pressure in their personal lives as schools have been closed, senior centers and other sorts of resources that support their family. Uh, but they have been committed to the mission, understanding that a lot of the stay in places or the main uh, thrust of the stay in place order was to really preserve and prop up the healthcare delivery system. And they understand that um, it is cutting across our organization. And then it would be fair to say that there are mixed views around uh, uh, whether certain staff feel that they are essential or not. Uh, we were very clear that we felt everyone, uh, the frontline caregivers and those who support us uh, or them, I should say, I'm not one of them. I'm in the latter group uh, are essential. And um, we are trying to do things to support those individuals to continue to be safe themselves as well. Uh, with, you know, mixed uh, uh, capability, uh, we have been able to use or take more uh, uh, active use of our telecommuting policy uh, for those individuals with tech-enabled uh, um, um, uh, work functions to be able to work from home. Uh, we are working with managers who haven't used the telecommuting policy to uh, learn to do that and to in, engage that with certain administrative staff who can also uh, be tech enabled. Uh, we're trying to, the telecommuting policy was largely for um, un, unrepresented workforce, uh, but we're trying to extend that where we can to uh, administrative staff who are represented as well. Uh, that falls into a bucket of things that I want to mention is um, a lot of what I'm calling things that we have to do under austere circumstances. Um, we are taking, trying to support our staff and we're doing certain things that we know will, will be able to help staff, but also things that um, uh, create the type of flexibility that we need as an organization and that our governor is calling on us to do to prepare and be ready for uh, the onslaught that might happen and that we're seeing in places like Seattle and uh, part, various parts of New York, including New York City, and now places in the South like uh, uh, New Orleans and Atlanta and others. Uh, and that means that um, we are uh, we're issuing communications to a lot of our unions saying, obviously, we respect uh, our collective bargaining agreements and we will do everything we can to honor the tenets of that. At the same time, there are certain things that we will need to do that um, in these austere circumstances might not lend themselves to doing multiple rounds of meet and confer with various unions. Uh, so going back to the telecommuting policy, if we have represented staff who uh, are tech enabled and we have uh, work that they can do from home, we're modifying and relaxing some of the um, uh, rules in our telecommuting policy to enable people to do that. Like, you know, some of our policy ordinarily says you can't be taking care of a kid while you're working from home. Uh, mm -hmm. That's kind of not 
what it's intended for. But obviously, in a circumstance like this, um, we know that that's going to be happening. People will have uh, some of those um, uh, priorities upon them. So uh, we're trying to relax things like that. Ordinarily, we say things like your your workspace has to be without a contractor in the house because you may be dealing with uh, confidential or protected information. And we understand that that might not be uh, allowable now. But uh, we're trying to do that in a blanket fashion. We're also doing things like uh, making provisions for uh, a new benefit that we're, uh, we announced to our staff today, offering uh, assistance with childcare or family care because we want them to um, be able to come to continue to come to work and support our, our, our patients and each other. Um, that's something we're trying to put in place. We've signed a contract and more details will be coming out about it. But again, ordinarily that might be something subject to meet and confer that we just won't have the time to be able to do. On the sort of flip side of that, you know, we are putting in place surge plans that might say uh, we're standing up beds in the part of the hospital that uh, we haven't historically staffed. And we may need to put staff there to support uh, patients as we build up our capacity. Uh, I also want to say in this context, um, we are trying to take the mantra that you may have heard um, um, uh, the uh, uh, physician leader from the CDC, Dr. Anthony Fauci, say, which is like, we rather beg for or, or be apologizing that we did too much then we didn't do enough. Uh, and so uh, we are taking some steps now to decompress some of our uh, inpatient units. Our EDs uh, are un eerily quiet at times now when you walk around at night and in the evenings. Most of our units are not at capacity uh, because we are trying to do things like uh, cancel elective surgeries, discharge patients as safe as uh, or as quickly as safely possible so that we can have that kind of capacity. So I just want to say those are things going on internal and I just uh, really want to underscore the, just the, the, um, the compassion of all of our staff, our food service workers, our engineers, our EVS workers, our frontline cl clinicians, our pharmacists, everybody being so dedicated uh, to this organization and this community in the face of the challenges that they are, they are facing themselves is, uh, really, really uh, impressive and remarkable, and, and we so appreciate it. Uh, I, I, I would say I'm not surprised about it. Um, I have been really repeating this mantra of a quote that you probably heard before about uh, adversity doesn't build character, it reveals it. And I think uh, the character of this organization has really uh, been on full display uh, so far, and I, I expect that that will, will continue because we understand who we serve and, and the importance of that service. Um, uh, we are doing stuff externally. Our community is really stepping up. You've heard me say we've gotten donations of supplies and PPEs um, uh, from the community. That's been uh, really uh, uh, remarkable. We're getting GoFundMe donations. We're getting food donated to our ER staff from local restaurants, which has been really, really um, uh, just, just uh, incredibly helpful uh, during this time as well. Um, I could go on and on. I will, I will try to wrap up in the interest of time. Uh, but if anyone has any questions about any of this, I'm happy to answer or anything else I might not have uh, mentioned. I, I have a question. Um, Vecchio, could you uh, run us down some of the numbers, please? Um, could you tell us how many COVID patients Thank you. had? Could you tell us how many of our staff have been infected? Could you also tell us what the status is of how many um, ventilators we have? 
Yes. Yeah, just give us a little bit of the numbers that we're dealing with because I'm trying thank to understand you. that. Yeah, thank you. I had a, uh, um, a slide up that I, I took down, but let me let me just walk through the numbers as I know them. So uh, let's start with te uh, testing, and I, I want to be sensitive because you will get a more of an update from the team later, so I don't want to step on their toes uh, uh, either. But um, just in terms of testing, we've done just under 200 tests uh, for um, – uh, suspected positive patients uh, in the community. Of those tests that we performed across the organization, we've had six positive cases as of yesterday. Uh, two of those patients are in the ICU, one of which you heard uh, Dr. Bouquet sort of referencing uh, uh, in his comments earlier. Um, uh, of the other four, they are all home in self-quarantine. Uh, one of them had been a patient at one of our other facilities but had since been discharged. Uh, to that end, uh, uh, a little bit about testing then I'll go to the staffing front. Testing has gradually improved both in terms of availability as well as uh, timeliness of responses. Uh, but that's with a bit of a caveat. Let me say availability, what I understand is we have, you know, north of 100 tests available now. Uh, and um, the timeliness, um, thanks to our partners in the county public health lab, um, has been really remarkable in the last couple of days. We're primarily, or we're predominantly getting our results back within 24 hours, sometimes just a little bit north of that, but well well within um, uh, a much more acceptable time where a couple of weeks ago we were getting out to five and six days uh, with the backlog at Quest. So we really appreciate that. Now that uh, availability of 100 or so tests is really, we like other uh, places have uh, restricted our tests to inpatients um, and prioritize that population. Uh, but we know uh, that there are people in the community and uh, who are concerned. Uh, they're not meeting the criteria. So we, even if we offered them the test, they have to get a number from the public health lab that uh, if they're not uh, meeting those criteria, they won't uh, give them the number. So uh, until that testing um, uh, criteria Thomas expands. Thomas Haynes to the ER, level second. 2, EPA, 7 minutes. Thomas Haynes to the ER, level 2, EPA, 7 minutes. Until that uh, criteria expands, we're limited in our ability to funnel our staff uh, through um uh, or avail them of testing that way. Uh, we are, uh, the types of testing is expanding and we are continuing to monitor that. And uh, it's becoming gradually uh, the level of testing that is um, feasible within the technology that we have in our own lab. Uh, that's probably about uh, a kind of a best case scenario, six weeks to two months out. Uh, so in the meantime, not a really readily available viable option for us. Uh, when we do have patients or staff who have taken care of a patient who is, uh, who we learn is COVID positive. Uh, we do uh, what we call contact tracing um, 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 sort of methodology with our infection preventionists and employee health. We contact all the staff who have been involved in that uh, patient's care. Uh, we make sure uh, that they have, uh, that they use the PPE that uh, has uh, been provided for them to care for those patients. Uh, and we do a check, sort of a general check of how they're feeling. Uh, if they're not, if they're asymptomatic and not uh, uh, feeling um, uh, bad or, or sick or ill, um, I believe the uh, current uh, guidance from the state and the CDC is that we can bring those individuals uh, back to work. Uh, if they are, we do ask them to go to their primary care provider right now. Uh, we do acknowledge uh, that in some cases, depending on who your PCP is, uh, you, they 
if they feel that you are symptomatic um, or should have the test, they may not have access to uh, testing kits. And so people are uh, either getting them in their primary care practice or sometimes having to go to other levels. So we have been working with our lab leadership and our clinical leadership, including Dr. Baden, uh, Rachel Baden, to lead an effort to um, gain greater access to testing for our staff. I will say that we are checking across the field um, uh, and looking at other institutions and to varying degrees, um, there are only a few uh, places that are able to offer fairly robust access to testing for their staff. So we're, we're sort of in the thick of it. It doesn't make it uh, that much reassuring for our uh, workforce, but um, uh, we're not uh, that far of an outlier um, and we are continuing to, to fight for that. I, I, oh, I, I didn't talk about vents and supplies. Let me tell you, just in general, uh, we are looking good on a supply basis. We, I think, are looking at about a month's worth of uh, capability in all of our supplies. On the vents, we have about uh, 35 to 40 vents that are not in use right now. So we have that as available uh, capacity. Um, uh, in terms of isolation rooms, we have a pretty strong uh, um, um, access uh, uh, for those rooms across our system as well. So so right now we're looking really um, good, but we're not resting on our laws. As I said, we are, we are doing things to continue to move patients throughout the system and home if we can uh, to make sure that we have that capacity uh, if, if the uptick uh, uh, is to occur. And we're constantly asking for and uh, scouring all of our vendor networks to get even more supplies because uh, I'll share, I read a, a story about a hospital in Georgia that in one week had, you know, six weeks worth of supplies and the following week had one week worth of supplies. So we know that it can really uh, kind of take off and, and, and uh, if your utilization spikes up and you don't have inventory coming in, you can, you can find yourself in a tough spot. So, mm. so our, our, um, uh, emergency management uh, team uh, has done a great job at sourcing a lot of material um, through the strategic national stockpiles. We were one of the first places to get a lot of material from there because we asked as early as uh, early to mid-February. Uh, we are going and asking a lot of our vendors for stuff, and uh, that's all been really good. The last thing I want to say is um, just a point of uh, bragging. Uh, we've had some challenges with this Zoom conference, but yesterday we deployed a new um, uh, uh, communication modality in the organization where we did a Zoom town hall uh, and I did some remarks and then we had other leaders like Dr. Hussein and um, uh, Dr. Tony Benet and Felicia, I'm sorry, Janet McInnes and others, Tony Rettman participate. We had over 600 uh, people participate, uh, 650 people uh, participate on an hour long call, um, 35 minutes of which was Q&A and uh, really had a really uh, strong response to that from the staff. And we're going to try to do that on a weekly basis now to amend the daily communications that we're sending out, the enhanced rounding that we're doing uh, to make sure that people are getting uh, uh, as much communication as we can. And we have gotten feedback from them that the information is power. The information is, is reassuring. They know that we're doing things and continue to do things to try to support them and to be ready to support the community. Yes. Well, me, me. Okay. Okay. I'm just curious, I like you on the supplies with the with the months worth. Is that using any assumptions about about increases, or is that at our current utilization rate? It's mostly the latter, I understand. But I'll I'll let my colleagues uh, speak to it who are running the command center. So if you want to, sure. Based on the last seven days of utilization, 
Um, but as the team is developing a certain plan, plan we're, we're modeling out the numbers. Um, we'll be able to back into that if our uh, numbers increase, how many days of PPE will be left. But currently, it's based on the last seven days of utilization. Um, my other question, and this might it might be just too early to know, but this is with re, with uh, respect to ventilator capacity. Do we know sort of average how long the duration of patients on the ventilators are, and so what that might mean as far as as we go forward, or yeah. Go ahead, please. No, from New York, uh, we're, we're approximating about seven to eight days. Uh, it's happening with the patients, either they are deteriorating or they are still waiting for, for data to, to modulate in terms of the surge capacity, in terms of average length of stay and ventilator utilization. In general, uh, we see two things. One, that patients, they come to the emergency, they are doing well, they send home, they come back, some of them come back, they deteriorate. So uh, out of these patients, uh, within, within probably like three to five days, they can either improve the upper ventilator or deteriorate in the daytime. Okay, and this is based on what we're seeing in the rest of the country. We don't have yeah, enough, they, obviously. They, they, they haven't really published much, but just like talking to people who are waiting for working intensive care. Thank you. Yesterday on the um, uh, um, county disaster coalition call, Erica Pan, the medical director of Alameda County Public Health Department, and Kathleen McClennan shared that they had, that the state had just finished their modeling. So after they had an opportunity to digest that they were going to make that publicly available. So I'm looking forward for that information to be available as well. In terms of hopefully, hopefully there will be more uh, information coming from the state models um, around some of these questions you're asking. Okay, great. Thank you. And I guess I'm just curious, within the context of our whole region, is that is that sort of what's being done at, the, at that level where so that we're not just, I mean, what what's the capacity regionally and how do we fit into sort of that piece of it? I'll say a little bit and then you guys can chime in. So we're, we're looking uh, not just regionally but statewide. Uh, uh, the California Hospital Association created a tool where all of the hospitals around the state are uh, uh, on a daily basis reporting on things like uh, bed availability, specific types of beds, uh, uh, equipment. Um, I don't think we're doing supplies in that context. Oh, we are doing supplies as well. Uh, so we see statewide, which includes some of our local um, uh, uh, partners as well or our, uh, local counterparts. Um, there are, we are also doing through the county's EOC, I think twice weekly. Uh, uh, updates on uh, capacity uh, and then uh, just today and uh, Trustee DeVries knows this uh, uh, we were um, standing up uh, an ability to use uh, some subset of that data even uh, for Oakland uh, where there are multiple hospitals and we'll be able to look across the city of Oakland to say um, uh, what are the, um, uh, the tertiary resources that we have in terms of all those different things as well and if you do you want to add anything to that okay Okay, I guess I didn't have more questions. Sure. So is that also the case with respect to testing capacity or we will, is it just sort of every institution? Yeah, I mean, it seems like we're all in a parallel race to, to get enough capacity on everything. So, but I'm just curious as to whether we're finally getting to a point where we're able to look at testing capacity of our county or of our region, or is it really us just trying to meet the demand of the patients that are walking in that meet the criteria for testing? Uh, so I'll say from my perspective, but feel free to disagree with me, it, it, it is still more of 
uh, kind of everyone for themselves. Uh, and I, I sense that there is some type of um, rationing or assignment or allocation uh, from uh, the various lab uh, perspectives. Uh, but from a sort of uh, provider perspective, I, I don't get that impression. I think some of that is predicated on not all of us are using the same resources. As I mentioned earlier, you know, um, places like Kaiser and Stanford and UCSF have uh, various capabilities that uh, some of us in other places uh, uh, may not have. Um, uh, as you know, there's different testing being put on the market um, and the FDA is sort of relaxing rules around uh, how you get those approved. And so um, uh, one of the recent examples started uh, Monday where the city of Hayward uh, in partnership with their fire department um, uh, partnered with a, I think it was a biotech farm over in Menlo Park. And they had a different test that they opened up and on their first day where they were offering somewhere around, I think 300 tests a day, uh, 250 to 300 tests a day, they had about, uh, um, 50 something positive uh, um, uh, cases from people who were using uh, their resource. Um, I understand that it wasn't FDA approved yet, uh, but that doesn't necessarily make it wrong. It's just the way they've opened it up to try to democratize um, uh, the testing. They are doing the confirmation of beta uh, just to get it out. So I think there is some context there that we should be mindful of. We're not using that. Uh, um, as uh, our testing uh, mechanism right now. It is still, that's, that's my lens. I feel like it's still not sort of centrally coordinated because of different modalities and everybody just sort of catching it as catch can. So. If you can make an effort to speak into the Speaking to the mic. Every time you turn the look here, it goes away. Okay. Fair enough. Sorry about that. Is that better? So I guess just to be more, even more pointed about the question regarding testing is that to the extent that, you know, some of the places that you've named that may have uh, started, you know, uh, like UCSF or Stanford, would we know if their capacity exceeded their need and therefore there was excess capacity that could be used by other institutions or is that is that communication at that level not to there yet? So our, uh, Dr. Ng has been in contact with a lot of her counterparts at these places and she is asking uh, those questions. Uh, I, I get the impression, and this is just me, that people are guarded in terms of kind of extending that because they know everyone's asking and the flight gate would open and I guess they would have a hard time sort of uh, making that rational decision of who they help and who they don't help. Um, um, so that's the impression I get. Uh, we have had uh, um, an employee, at least one, uh, who uh, had to get tested at uh, uh, UCSF, uh, but and to the extent of creating something, and, and that was negative, sorry, I should say that, uh, uh, but to um, the extent that we've been able to, we haven't been able to get something where we have a guaranteed sort of uh, conduit uh, from anyone else at this particular juncture. I do just think it's important that we, you know, and this is for trustees, are be thinking about this piece of it because I do think as this um, crisis unfolds, we have to always be thinking about equity just like we do with everything else. And so, I mean, for me, that would be an important conversation to be having um, with external partners. Do you want to bring Dr. Uh, if she's there and she wants to. Uh, uh, add, she would be the better source. Dr. Ng, if you're there, we'll, we'll unmute you. Is that her? B-A-N-G? B-A-N-G. Yeah. Dr. Ng, did you want to? Hold on. Okay, she's been unmuted, but she has to unmute. Oh, Dr. Ng, you have to unmute yourself. 
Karen, if she can hear us. Oh, there she is. Okay. Doctor, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you now. Um, so I just want the trustees to know for the last three days we've been having conversations. Just, that was good. I must turn you as well. Sorry, go ahead, Doctor. Okay, uh, we've been in heavy conversation with every supplier of tests, not only locally, but nationally. I will tell you, UCSF is one week away from being able to offer tests externally. Um, Stanford, right now, you need to, that's a different issue. Quest is able to take our volume, but it's a four to seven day turnaround time. We've been spoiled by the public health lab, which gives us 24 hour turnaround time, Monday through Friday. Convince them to do runs on Saturdays, and I'm trying to convince them to do a run on Sunday. So right now, we're pretty spoiled. Thank you, Dr. Ng. Other trustees, um, questions? Yeah, I, I was wondering what the uh, public health department's capacity is uh, for testing, given their quick turnaround. For, for testing, you ask me? Yeah, I, I assume we're okay now because of the low amount of testing that we're doing, but assuming that they were to ramp that up. I mean, what's their capacity to ramp up? Uh, Dr. Ann, can I ask you to speak to that from your, from your uh, knowledge perspective? Well, let me mute you. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, the public health lab right now is um, being relatively coy about what their capacity is. I keep pushing them. I get the sense they might it might be precarious. Um, I have asked them to do testing for our symptomatic healthcare workers. Um, they've not gotten back to me yet on that either. Um, issues with testing are not so much capacity supply chain. Many of the reagents that are needed to do testing are in global shortage, which is why right now they're very um, cautious in letting us know how much we can expand. Thank you. Other trustees? Trustee Banerjee. Staff, thank you for sharing about how things were from your vantage. I know that we didn't get a chance to hear from um, our other chiefs of staff. So just a, a very briefly, like how, what's happening at Alameda and San Leandro, if Dr. Marzouk or Dr. Ingenio or, um, would share. Dr. Marzouk or Dr. Ingenio, are you able to give an update? I do not have any particular data on the number of lab tests that are done. Um, 
at San Leandro. I know there's there. I don't believe there have been any positive tests at San Leandro, to my knowledge. Yeah, of, of, of our tests, I think we have one positive at, uh, from San Leandro. That patient's not in the. That person is no longer in house. That's correct. Right. I do. I do. I'm sorry, uh, the same around me, but I'm not aware of uh, any positive uh, uh, cases around me. We've tested all negatives, but no positive ones. Yeah, so uh, I stand corrected on the prior statement. We have two um, positives from San Leandro. One was uh, purely through the ED, and the other uh, was an ED patient who became an inpatient, uh, but um, is also uh, discharged. And at Alameda, uh, we've had one. So, so the six was the six that you reported earlier was just for Highland. No, that's total. Okay, so actually five patients. We have one patient who was tested twice. Uh, I, I thought this morning I was reporting six. There's seven tests, six positive. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, it's six. Yeah, okay. We're, we're so it's uh, six overall, and um, um. Uh, two from Alameda, one from, uh, uh, I'm sorry, two from St. Leandro, one from Alameda. Um, this is Tracy. Often we, at, at every board meeting, we hear from the, the chiefs of staff, and I was wondering if the medical staff reports could happen, or is that going to be postponed? I was able to hear, yeah. And I think that this was a little bit of a function of Dr. Bouquet and I trying to streamline things and possibly over streamlining a bit. So the intent was to not have the staff reports be repeated at both QPSC and full board, but to bring to the full board um, sort of the pertinent items. So I am not opposed at all to having the medical staff reports now because I understand that uh, they were abbreviated in QPSC as well. Um, so yeah, so definitely open to doing that. Um, that now and apologize for sort of any um, miscommunication with myself and Dr. Bouquet. I think our intent going forward, and this was sort of our conversation before sort of everything got a little turned upside down with COVID-19 and the having to do things by Zoom, um, the, the conversation in general is wanting to be um, very mindful of what it is that the full board would like to hear from QPSC and make sure that that is, um, those are going to be um, sort of not necessarily a duplication of what happens in QPSC happening again at the full board. Um, and so it might take us a minute to get it right, but absolutely um, would love to hear from our, our medical staff if, if they want to um, chime in at this time. Uh, I'll just uh, chime in. Uh, obviously, we've been encumbered by all the, uh, the preparation for COVID and which we've, uh, in terms of our ER staff and our entire staff. Uh, so uh, all the only medical staff reports are, uh, in terms of the credentialing, uh, everything's been credentialed, and we've also allowed for, for uh, disaster privileges for our 
AR residents uh, from uh, Highland to be able to, in a, in a disaster situation, in a surge situation, to be able to have privileges uh, at uh, Alameda, and I think they've done the same at, uh, in the ER uh, to help out uh, if uh, the surge and uh, you know, the attempt for testing as well. I've tend for people suspicious of uh, COVID. So a lot of uh, kudos to the organization and uh, for preparation and the hard work that everyone's been doing. Thank you, Dr. Marcy. That's really helpful information. Thank you. Dr. Ingenio, did you, and Dr. Ballard, I think I saw you on here as well. I can comment um, briefly. We, we did not have a a meeting um, this uh, past month um, because of the issues related to the Joint Commission right around that time. Um, I can tell you, though, that in general, the elective uh, work there obviously has been shut down completely in the operating room. Um, the, uh, the floor census has been relatively low, um, and so um, the ICUs have uh, had a pretty normal volume. I haven't heard directly from Dr. Abzali any specific issues. I haven't been in contact with him in the last few days. Um, but uh, other than those two patients, I hadn't heard of any active inpatients uh, at all currently um, with uh, this virus right now. Dr. Ingenio and Dr. Marzik, I have a question. Um, have you been utilizing the the respiratory tents in the outside of the the main hospital. Uh, can I uh, just say for my capacity uh, and then in ten years at least maybe just uh, we didn't do a tent at San Angelo actually. Um, um, yeah, because we have the internal room. Um, we actually have the, it's a classroom. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a classroom, and so it's actually better than a tent, uh, but it's, it's uh, stocked and prepped uh, uh, just as a tent is uh, and just uh, better climate control. Uh, and it's on standby because we haven't had the, um, uh, the need to activate it yet in terms of, um, um, you know, surge or, or um, a, a great number of patients. Uh, so that's not being used. And I don't know about the one at Alameda. I think it's the same status. Yeah, so there's a tent at Alameda that's set up and ready to go, but we haven't had to use it yet. Uh, and the one at Highland, we've been we've had to use and we are using. Thank you. Sure. Oh, I didn't. Were you? Were, I'm sorry, Trustee Jensen. Were you asking about their own uh, private clinics, or were you asking about the hospital? You're back on mute. Hold on. Wait. Hold on. Uh oh. I better not. Okay. I was asking about the. I was asking about the system. I was asking about the tent that I did see at Alameda Hospital, and I was. I thought perhaps there was one at San and I, I appreciate the information about the classroom too. Okay. Thank you. So thank you. Um, can everybody hear me? Great. 
So uh, I, I will say that there's been, as usual, an enormous amount of heavy lifting by um, the med staff services to get the disaster privileges both um, screened by all the chairs whose departments are impacted and to start cranking through recredentialing people for alternate jobs and the ones that they usually do. So we're just beginning to expand, but I've already signed off on probably 30 charts for ambulatory docs to help um, in other places, and they usually help for ER senior residents and, and medicine senior residents to come to the call and, and act as an attending if needed, um, if we become completely overwhelmed. So, you know, as usual, Satira and her team have been working countless hours to try to get all the paperwork um, legitimately done and processed. And um, so, you know, once again, I'm, I'm really humbled by watching that, that group of people keep us um, legitimate in terms of, you know, the bureaucratic and, and regulatory side of things. There, there's a lot of work yet to be done. The amount of infrastructure building and the amount of disaster prep that I, being a disaster medicine doc, am extremely excited about. Um, the, the command center has matured over the course of the three weeks from something that kind of didn't resemble a command center to an extremely efficient, well-run machine now. And um, I, I honestly never thought I'd see something so beautiful as that command center. So, you know, the, the interesting thing about pandemics is it's a different kind of disaster. And it's, a, it's sort of a very slow rolling tidal wave that you're standing on the shore watching come, in, come at you. Whereas, you know, my, my traditional types of disaster being a trauma surgeon happen and are, you know, are essentially over. ER, level two, staff. <laughs> to the ER. Case in point. Um, but, but the, you know, the usual kinds of mass casualties we think about are, are much more quick. And this, this new pandemic is an experience that all of us are in fascination over and, and kind of terror at the same time. So I can't tell you how proud I am of everybody here and how hard everyone's working. And, you know, using the command center and the ICC and the ICS system format to really create something that if we do get the tidal wave washing over us like a tsunami, I think we're gonna be as prepared as we possibly could have been once it happens. And if not, I'll be happy about that too. That's all I got. Uh, yeah, um, my question is, if we've only got those six folks there, um, is there a surge occurring because of the number of people being tested or coming for other similar maybe symptoms if they're not sure? And then the second part of that question would be, where are they going? If uh, Do I understand correctly, Alameda County has, I think, 127 cases. Is that right? So where, where do we think they're going for their treatment? 
So um, um, not all of the positive cases are requiring treatment, um, uh, as we mentioned, even with ours of the six, uh, uh, only two are in-house uh, getting care. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, uh, my understanding, though I don't, uh, I'd have confirmed this, is that a vast number of those positive cases are people who uh, were um, confirmed and they are in outpatient settings or at homes, I should say. Um, I got a good sense across uh, some of our uh, other Oakland facilities that uh, their facilities look a lot like ours, where everybody has taken all these steps and their, their senses are lower than they normally are because of provisions we're doing to um, slow down surgeries and, and discharge patients um, and that everybody's just sort of standing at the ready but doing things while they wait like you know building additional capacity doing cross training of staff as uh, Dr. Boulard mentioned um, uh, adding credentials and all those sorts of things. Trustee Jensen, you're, you're unmuted. Dr. Bullard, is this um, both the preparations and the eventual um, increase in COVID-19 patients, is this having an impact or will it have an impact on our, uh, our medical training, our residents and Okay, great. So it, it will. It will have effect on, and I can speak primarily about surgery, is that, you know, surgery residents have to log the, the kinds of cases and the numbers of cases they do each year to graduate. So, so I think from every standpoint, there are residents that, you know, aren't doing right now what they're supposed to be. And I'll tell you my selfish, my selfish bias is that they may not be doing what they're supposed to be doing right now, but they are learning an extraordinary experience as doctors. And um, my guess is, my gut feeling is that even though they may not be getting that 30-second appendectomy or the, the final, the fifth or final rotation on a certain service right now that the regulatory bodies when this is all said and done the regulatory bodies that the the residency review committee from the acgme my guess is my gut feeling is is that those those requirements may not be quite so stringent in light of a two-month history of experience with covid19 so that that's kind of my prediction and i and i do think it's affecting residency experience in the traditional sense however it's also adding an extraordinary educational experience to deal with a pandemic as a trainee i mean i never had that opportunity so it depends on how you look at it i, I think there i think that all of our trainees are having an extraordinary opportunity to learn something that God forbid, they may see more in their own lifetime than any of the f current physicians saw in their training or have seen in their lifetime so far because these pandemics and the epi these epidemics are becoming more common. So it's, it's an extraordinary training experience for them if we allow it to be. 
Thank you, Dr. Lard, Dr. Genio, Dr. Marzouk, and thank you, Tracy, Trustee Jensen, for, for prompting that. That was really valuable. Uh, Trustee okay. Hernandez, did you have a comment? No, I didn't. I think uh, Mike just saw an older note. It's okay. I'm good. Anybody else? Trustees? Questions, comments? Trustee Banerjee? Just wanted to say thank you. Just thank you know, this level of commitment and hard work, there are no words really for the work that you all are doing. So, you know, just heartfelt thanks. CEO, did you complete your... Oh, I did. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> Were there questions for our CEO? Okay. So I am going to move us to the consent agenda. We have approval of the minutes, approval of policies and procedures, and approval of a resolution to of commitment to the trauma center. Um, were there any items we needed to pull for discussion? Make that a motion. Motion to approve. Approved. Second. Yeah, you got, oh. yeah, there you go. You got both. You got to move in a second. Oh. You didn't hear it? No. Kevin, come up to mute your mic so I move the one right there. I think Ross moved and Joe seconded. Yeah. Somebody moved and Joe seconded. That's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Aye. Oh, I'm trusting she's going to have Aye. 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 <laughs> Trustee Banerjee, I think you're still muted as well. Was that I? <laughs> I. So, thank you. Report so regulatory affairs updates um, on JCO findings. Dr. Hussain. All right. Uh, so uh, I guess I'll start by saying that as you've heard today, these are truly extraordinary times, and um, we haven't faced a pandemic like this since. And when I look around at our organization and our community, um, the remarkable display and portrayal of how we cling uh, to our So it's really practicing that um, when, uh, as we're working through these joint commission findings, we know that we're potentially taxing the same people. But there's also an opportunity to recognize that in the day-to-day -day work, it takes patient safety and quality and adherence to regulatory guidelines is really equally valiant on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, we uh, underwent our triennial joint commission survey for the core, which was all facilities discussed by Alameda Hospital and the wellness clinic. Mm -hmm. March, uh, excuse me, between February 24th and 28th. Um, it was a survey that came eight months before the close of our window, um, so it was early. Um, and 
it was quite exhaustive. We had one year please for there to sit for five days, two years to sit for four days, two RN who participated for five days, one physician surveyor that participated for five days, one behavioral survey, behavioral health surveyor for one day, and another physician surveyor that was focused on ambulatory for a day. Um, and it was exhaustive, um, as we expected in light of our recent subcommittee that are using that. Um, and the Great Commission, I think, really wanted to make sure we didn't have to say that, yeah, that might have been a little bit of a loss data. For those five days, every evening, uh, as an organization, we reviewed the findings in anticipation of the work that needed to be done overnight and the next day. Um, and during the survey process itself, uh, there was a lot of work um, uh, from our frontline staff, from uh, the operational leaders that supported the surveyors, um, and then the command center where there were 239 items that surveyors asked after a company escort about follow-up activities. Um, on March 2nd, um, the Monday after the week of survey, we received a preliminary report. Uh, in terms of the preliminary report, um, when we stratify the severity of findings, uh, the most concerning finding would be if we had an immediate threat finding. Um, that is, if the surveyors observed something that they thought was immediate threat, threat life, it would stop um, the survey. We fortunately didn't have any of those types of observations during those five days. Um, however, we had 78 findings. Um, or I should say 78 elements of performance that were cited in approximately 150 uh, observations. Um, areas that were highlighted by surveyors as being successful uh, included the goals of medication management, provision of care despite being voluminous chapters with very few findings, medical staff, uh, life safety team did very well as well, and data management when surveyors are surveying, um, what they do is they catalog their observations on an element of performance, and then depending on the number uh, and the severity and how widespread findings are, um, they can be um, what are called condition-level findings. Um, that is a finding that raise the question about whether or not our facility meets the minimum conditions of participation required. Uh, I, I'm sorry. It is hard to hear you, and it seems as if somebody else has their mic on, and sometimes they're picking you up, and sometimes you're being picked up, but it's very hard to hear you. Sorry, I'll, I'll try to speak up louder. That's better. Okay, very good. So, um, as I was mentioning, when findings reach a critical level um, of concern, either in terms of their number or their severity or their pattern, um, they re uh, reach what's called condition level. That is findings that raise concerns about whether our facility is meeting the, meeting the minimum conditions of participation required for continued certification to care for patients and the payment associated with uh, CMS. And um, we received five condition level findings. I'll talk a little more about those, but they're in the areas of governing body, patient rights, environment of care, infection control, and surgical services. After the preliminary report went out on March 2nd, we uh, received a final report on March 9th. On March 9th, uh, we were notified that our Joint Commission status was a preliminary denial of accreditation. Um, this puts us in a different pathway. 
The preliminary denial of accreditation does not mean that we have lost our deemed status, uh, i.e. the Joint Commission will continue to remain our accrediting uh, agency or organization on behalf of CMS, nor does it mean that we've lost certification from CMS. But what it does mean is that it puts us on an intense pathway to continually having to validate for the Joint Commission we're uh, obliging to the elements of performance. So uh, we were required uh, to submit our plans of action or evidence of standard corrections for the 78 findings and the 160 or so observations within 10 days. Um, but due to uh, uh, COVID, that date was actually extended to April 6th. Um, additionally, usually, um, whenever organizations receive a preliminary denial of accreditation or because they've had condition level findings, um, the Joint Commission will come back within 45 days. However, again, because of COVID, uh, there's a temporary, uh, temporary um, uh, rescheduling at least till May 1st, but that of course will pending the nature of the pandemic. After we complete the Medicare deficiency survey, if we pass, there will be another full validation survey for all the elements uh, of uh, uh, evidence of standard correction that we have submitted. So after the Medicare deficiency survey, whenever that occurs, focus on the conditions of participation. There will be another uh, survey uh, shortly thereafter on all of the uh, plans that we submitted. Subsequent to that, um, Although most organizations do not need to participate in what's called intracycle monitoring, that is any additional surveys uh, between the triennial, because we are on this preliminary denial of accreditation pathway, we will actually have to have another full survey called intracycle monitoring. Furthermore, our next triennial survey, um, instead of waiting three years, will be pulled up. So we have a series of surveys we will now need to um, undergo to demonstrate our adherence uh, to the elements of performance that the Joint Commission surveys on. So at a very high level, uh, let me highlight those conditions of participation. Probably the most important one uh, for, the, for this board to be aware of is the condition level finding for the governing body. Now, when one or when an organization has multiple conditions of participation uh, findings, it is not unusual that the governing body is cited. However, in addition to getting cited for our multiple other conditions, uh, conditional findings, uh, the governing body was cited for two additional uh, primary reasons. One was that in November, the Joint Commission uh, was uh, conducted an anonymous complaint survey at John George um, regarding staffing and the cleanliness of the environment at John George. Uh, one of the reasons uh, that we got an additional finding under governing body was a concern about the continued cleanliness or status thereof uh, during the survey at John George. The other uh, uh, reason for a governing level uh, finding is the process by which the governing board holds uh, staff accountable for their duties. In this instance, there were multiple uh, deviations, for example, for the crash cart, uh, um, checking of the crash cart and making sure that all components are completed appropriately. 
The other, uh, another area that was a condition level finding was around the environment of care. Um, again, this was centered mostly around the cleanliness of the environment. Um, the two instances that uh, required substantial conversation with the LEAP surveyors during the survey, uh, as already mentioned, was around the um, cleanliness of the three inpatient units and PES at John George. Um, and the second was around the uh, maintenance um, and cleanliness of the San Leandro kitchen. And this had previously been cited in the October core CMS survey. Uh, so this was another uh, uh, prime uh, uh, major area under the environment of care and why that was cited for as a condition level finding. In the area of patient rights, um, the primary reasons um, at a high level that these were condition level, um, their continued uh, one was um, findings around markings in the bathroom at John George. Um, uh, that uh, uh, um, that were not repaired in a timely fashion, and there was concern that this created an environment that didn't respect patient dignity. Um, additionally, um, there was concern about the execution of uh, the environmental risk assessment um, that had been established and submitted from the prior uh, Joint Commission survey. And there were findings and gaps in documentation and suicide risk assessment at John George and San Leandro. In terms of infection control and surgical services, uh, the reason that this was found to be condition levels because of um, primarily around con sanitary conditions and procedural areas, um, as well as failure for uh, the demonstration that staff were following uh, the processes and policies in place um, uh, for disinfection, sterilization, and cleaning. I want to assure you that during the course of the survey, uh, many of these things uh, were addressed in real time. Uh, the surveyors noted our, uh, the responses, uh, responsiveness of the organization and had confidence that if we continue to act in this responsive way, um, uh, uh, that we would be able to, re uh, um, to overcome our findings. And um, so immediately after the survey on March 2nd, there was a dyad debrief uh, with all organizational leaders to review the findings. On March 3rd, um, um, sent out to all the leaders was the standard template uh, by which plans would need to be submitted, as well as a daily leader readiness rounding tool that was sent. On March 5th, we held a mandatory leadership webinar attended by over 80 leaders that discussed the findings, as well as the um, template for submitting evidence of standard corrections, as well as the daily leader rounding tool. Between March 5th and March 16th, the regulatory affairs team met to draft evidence of standard corrections for the 160 plus observations, and these were finalized on March 16th. On March 16th, um, continuing the education that was submitted prior uh, to the Joint Commission, arriving um, those uh, uh, webinar series from the Joint Commission to make sure that leaders are aware of the standards within their chapters was again sent out on March 16th. Starting on March 16th, um, the quality department comprised of the patient safety team, the quality team, the infection prevention team uh, began three times a week rounding. So uh, at San Leandro, at Highland, at John George, and most importantly, accompanied by the dyad leaders on every unit um, to begin to help create additional, uh, another set of eyes around 
those conditions that should be a part of the daily work of, of frontline leaders. Um, in addition, the infection prevention team and quality began tracers, infection prevention tracers and in critical areas, including high level disinfection, processing, SPD, um, as well as in the OR areas. And beginning on uh, this week, uh, the regulatory affairs team three times a week um, at every single facility does validation of those plans and gives feedback to operational leaders. On March 31st, we intend to have um, uh, not only the evidence of standard, uh, standard correction plan completed, but as well as because we have conditional level findings, we have to submit preventative analysis that is root causes for every single one of the findings to let the Joint Commission know uh, how we will prevent this from happening again, as well as monitoring metrics. So during the month of April, we will be collecting that monitoring data to hopefully present a dashboard by the first week of May or the second. That's a high level overview of the findings and the work that's been done to date. Um, reflecting on some of the conversation today, I have just three thoughts. One is um, the importance of what we've already talked about, uh, the power of vulnerability, recognizing um, after hearing all this, what we can do better, that we want to do better, and asking what we need to be better. And I believe those conversations have started, um, much like the ones that we had when we were dealing with the, uh, um, the CMS complaint validations at John George. The second is thinking about what it means to become a safety first organization. Earlier we talked about what can we afford to do. And I think uh, that entails both the fiscal components of that, but also what will we accept the quality of what we're doing. So being really reflective about how do we ensure that what we're providing um, meets the standard of quality that we expect. And the final thing that uh, uh, I think this journey will lead us to is really thinking about high reliability, making sure that every instance that each of us performs an action, that we think about the loopholes that can lead to a quality or safety issue and really ingraining that in our daily management systems. Um, so with that, um, I'll, I'll open up uh, for questions. Okay. So, okay. So I guess, um, thank you, Dr. Tandit, for that. That was um, really helpful overview. I just, for me, obviously, the findings are, are concerning. Um, the status I wear is concerning. But I guess for me, the biggest concern and question I have for you is about repeat findings. Um, so, you know, having to do a lot of audits and different things, you oftentimes will put the corrective action in place and then it does, somehow doesn't stick, or perhaps the corrective action wasn't put into place. So, I'm just wondering, and I know that you've said you'll be doing root cause analyses on all these things, so maybe it's too early, but just your sense. Um, and, and there was obviously a lot of things with John George that were in transition at the time, and there was a lot of major things that we had to attend to, so I, I, do, I, I do recall that. But just sort of curious for the repeat findings specifically, because that is where I think from a governance perspective, we have to be asking the questions sort of what, what went wrong and how do, we, um, you know, how do we have the appropriate level of oversight or ask the right questions to make sure that going forward we don't have a repeat 
finding. So, so there are some of the findings uh, that may happen because the survey was survey was there at the wrong time, you know, uh, 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 at the wrong place. I.e., maybe there were plans that were supposed to be executed the day of or the day after, and the surveyor came in at a time that it hadn't been executed. Um, so, for example, what we were able to show during the actual survey uh, was, for example, that there had been um, a contract with the vendor with vendors to clean the San Leandro kitchen, for example. So that was reassuring to the surveyors that that work was going to commence. Um, in other instances, um, I think it's about ensuring um, that there is high reliability, meaning that when we see something, we have enough pride and ownership in our environment that we take care of it immediately rather than letting it sit around. From a just culture perspective, the questions we have to ask, um, and I'll let the other leaders in the room sort of comment on that, is are we structured to be able to be responsive in the way we need to be? Um, and that is something that I'll need to defer to other leaders in the room. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think it sort of reflects some of the budget conversations we were having is we may not be able to be excellent in everything with the resources we have. So what do we want to be excellent at and really be good at it? Um, so, uh, this is Del Vecchio. So, I appreciate um, uh, Tambor's context, and I think uh, just knowing that as a team uh, meeting and discussing this, that we uh, align quite well uh, on this. And you know, one one as I mentioned is sort of an incidental uh, um, situation, maybe not right place or wrong place, wrong time. We want to always be ready, uh, but there is a process and a cadence to doing things that if you're in the midst of that kind of um, uh, process, then um, you, you, you might find yourself not being as ready as you would otherwise be or uh, being able to demonstrate that. So I think that's true. The other side, I, I think he makes a point that resonates with me and certainly with the others is that um, we often, I think as an organization, uh, um, find ourselves challenged with competing priorities and demands, uh, not just across the leadership realm, but on the frontline uh, realm as well. You know, if there's some things going on in the space, uh, and even if they uh, prolong or go on for a prolonged period of time, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of things to type to, to keep for mind. And I think everybody has a natural bandwidth that, you know, if there's like six priorities, you're, you're going to know four of them. And at any given time, those four may change, but uh, you're not, you're, you struggle to have all six priorities top of mind all the time. And so uh, it, it begs the 
question how can you create sort of systems that allow you to create some level of control that even when you're it's like juggling right even when you're not touching the one that's in the air you know it's still in the air and that it hasn't gone below your hand uh so if you can have some type of um uh, feedback mechanism that provides that to you uh, then you can you can keep again a tighter band of control that doesn't uh, have things falling on the other side of that so what I know and uh, what I have appreciated is that uh, this is underscored for us a need to look at this uh, leadership structure that we have, um, uh, the philosophy we have around diets and really making sure that people not only uh, understand that structure and, and what roles they play in it, but also that they have the tools uh, that they need in order to execute on the accountability that we expect people to have uh, so that they know the range of what are things that they're accountable for uh, and that their accountability uh, manifests only in the terms of, you know, filling out a work order and reporting something so somebody else can uh, take care of it up to know they're actually supposed to do the work themselves and they need to create standards around it. And if they need tools to both, have that work happen reliably as well as uh, be able to monitor it um, uh, the same way that a surveyor would do that we provide that to them. So I know that work is underway and those assessments are happening. Some of that is uh, much more long-term and takes some time to get at um, uh, some underlying um, relational issues, uh, skills issues, because we're developing new uh, behaviors and muscles for people, whereas in other places it's a little bit more uh, hardwired where people have been uh, performing at that level for a while. So, so a lot more work to come, but I think that uh, speaks to a, a kind of a high level of what, what we have found predominantly in the space of repeat findings, to your point, uh, Trustee Avalada, but also in the other areas of um, the, the newer findings as well. Trustee um, Avalada? Yeah, Delvecchio, could you describe um, what your conversations were like with folks that day? What, you know, what was the interaction like? I'm, I'm just curious how the leadership team on the day of this visit, uh, sort of processes all of this information as a team. Uh, yeah, so the survey was five days, um, and um, I was here for the first couple of days of the survey. I was not here on the day of the uh, report out, um, so I didn't process it with uh, that team. Um, I have actually had a series of conversations with um, groups of individuals as well as with individual leaders as a um, as a follow-on from those conversations that occurred. So huddle with our quality leader, our COO, and our CMO uh, to talk about uh, this context and really uh, get ourselves aligned around the work, uh, the specifics of the collective actions, as well as in the cultural environment and conditions that uh, facilitate or that will that will need to be addressed as well as we move forward with that that uh, work and so that we're not just responding to the survey but we're also um, going deeper and um, getting to the root of what are some of the um, the weaknesses or opportunities within our our day-to-day -day management uh, infrastructure so really leaning to uh, the cmo and the coo to guide that work and then um, as a sort of follow-on to that having a series of 
uh, one-on-one conversations with clinical leaders, uh, predominantly chairs, uh, but also our chief of staff for the uh, the, the core, uh, Dr. Goulart, and getting some uh, appreciation for how people feel about the diet model and how it is working, uh, places where it's working well, uh, but also places where it isn't um, uh, working so well and what might be driving some of those um, uh, uh, practical realities as well. And now working with the CMO and the COO to say, we need to continue this work and uh, do the corrective actions as, as Dr. Hussein has mentioned, but also continue to build um, and uh, source the organization with uh, a cultural framework as well as a set of tools as I mentioned uh, before. Go ahead, Dr. Doctor, go ahead, Justin Benedict. Yeah, I mean, I, I just have to say this candidly. I mean, I can't think of a more urgent and a more important meeting than that interview that kind of encapsulates from from the surveyors themselves, what's what's going on um, and what they found and why they found something. So that is so rich and secondhand info as much as we want to like. So I'm just kind of because, you know, I know I was um, at the San Leandro exit interview when that happened, when it was a separate license and they came. I wish that um, you had been there as well because it was so rich and I'm sure like any of us would have come here uh, to the um, Highland one, I mean the, uh, the here as well if we had known because this is serious and um, so two things, one is like I think that the option of not being there is kind of hard to fathom for me um, and the second thing is that what a lot of what Tanvir you said was things around cleanliness and environment of care. So that is also a little bit like kind of seems more basic. Were there, uh, you know, a uh, so so that's kind of again like we are talking about ground level stuff that needs to to be in place. So <clears throat> that three. We've heard this from a deficit-based thing of all the things that went wrong. Were there any bright spots that you can share with us? Tell of anything that was highlighted as, um, as something that was good? Yes, and actually... I know Dr. Buchanan had also been trying to... It's a chime in as well, so I wanted to make sure. I think you're unmuted now as well, so I don't know. I'll answer to this. Um, some of the areas that the uh, survey has actually identified as bright spots um, included the areas of pharmacy or medication management, the medical staff, the management and performance improvement. Um, and from my own perspective, um, really uh, highlighting the number of life safety findings that have gone down um, over the survey. So, uh, were identified by the surveyors directly. Oh, sorry, and provision of care. I forgot to mention provision of care. So that was another area. Medication management, provision of care, medical staff, and data management and performance improvement. Um, okay, Mr. Trustee Bucat, next. Um, 
Trusty Bouquet, sorry, I know you've been trying to get in here, Trusty Bouquet. No, I, I just haven't, I just didn't know how to raise my hand in it. I'll defer to Trustee DeVries right now, please. Trustee DeVries? Uh, <clears throat> echoing what uh, Trustee of Energy brought up about around cleanliness, and I know we've really been trying to trim expenses over the last year. Have we trimmed too far with our environmental services staff? I mean, I just have to ask that question. I know we hear that. Uh, and uh, I'm just wondering, I mean, from kitchens to bathrooms at John George, I mean, kitchens to San Leandro, I just wonder, is that is that where the problem is? I mean, it sounds like the delivery of care is excellent, but the maintenance of the facility is where we're falling down. Trustee DeVries, thank you for the comment. I, I, what I would say is that, uh, you know, we've been, we've been managing and we've been monitoring UBS uh, very closely, obviously, for the last several months. If you recall, we went through a, a, a pretty significant restructure of our EBS division uh, where we rebid all of our schedules and we were looking at creating new assignments uh, or reevaluating re all the assignments to ensure that we had uh, the appropriate level of staffing to support these, uh, you know, said uh, assignments. And so... Uh, we're continuing to to look at that very closely uh, as we're as we're doing that. We're also making sure that we uh, are providing uh, you know the staff with uh, the necessary training and and uh, but equally making sure that people have a clear understanding of what the expectations are of the work that needs to be done. And so as we continue to uh, not only manage the operation, uh, we continue to increase accountability. Uh, we're, 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 you know, dealing with uh, multiple variables uh, that that we that impact the operation as a, as a whole, uh, and and that has to do largely with, uh, you know, we, we have quite a few people that are out on leave of absence, and that there's a lot of things that we're managing uh, just from a day to day operational perspective that that have a direct impact on on what's happening. So you know, when you when you look at the the entire uh, function of of the division specifically of that department. Uh, it's it's one of those things where there's you know there's the issues that we're dealing with uh, from a personnel perspective. Uh, there's an issue that we're dealing with uh, related to clarity around the assignments and accountability. Uh, and then equally, I wanna I wanna just emphasize and make the point that you know there you know when, when we talk about these things, you know it's it's not all just EBS. Uh, you know the, the, not all of these uh, findings were. Uh, a result of EBS's, uh, you know, lack of, of, of attention or support or, or, or you know, anything. It's, you know, some of these areas are the accountability of other departments and other functions and other divisions that, uh, you know, are related to cleanliness but are not the scope or function of our environmental services department. And so we want to make sure that we keep that in mind, i.e., for example, you know, the kitchen. The kitchen is not, uh, you know, cleaned or maintained by EBS. It is cleaned and maintained by our food service workers. Uh, and our food services division. And so how we're managing and supporting that team uh, to make that happen. And so, uh, again, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, I think my position at this point and in discussions with uh, the team, and as we continue to look at this very closely, it's not an issue of, of uh, have we trimmed too much. It's an issue of continuing to deal with, uh, you know, the personal management issues that we're working through. Uh, continuing to support the staff, continuing to make sure that they have the resources and the training to make the, the uh, to effectively uh, perform their jobs and uh, and uh, continue to provide uh, clear oversight of, of the work that's happening. 
Let me, let me add something to that. Uh, so I, I think uh, from my perspective, I including some of the rounding that I've been doing, both related to this, uh, obviously, as well as uh, COVID-19, including with our ABS staff, is I we shouldn't or we should be careful about associating kind of the finding with the work that's being done. Um, the And I'm not as, assuming that you're doing that, but I just want to put it in, in, in context that uh, there is evolution going on based off of the, uh, the job assignments that's actually um, um, either producing or uh, dealing with um, some or contending with some of the things that Luis just mentioned in terms of leave of absences and and things like that uh, and the newness of the job assignment. There's also um, uh, work on the part of the leaders there to deal with uh, management um, uh, deficiencies and opportunities, and that has created a, a, a fair amount of turnover for the management as they are being held accountable. I think at the current moment we have about five. Uh, some some are coming on board, so I don't know if it's still five yet. But um, over a period of time, we've had five management vacancies too. So that also uh, in the EBS realm uh, um, will provide or provide a deficit of a layer of oversight um, to be able to manage the work. In addition to helping uh, the people get accustomed to their new roles uh, and drive that that transformation too. So it's not as straightforward as cutting back and having uh, too few people. It's really more about the evolution in the space. And then the last thing I'll uh, add is, uh, as Luis mentioned, uh, um, I did the same thing when I read the report and said, you know, some of these issues that um, sound on their face uh, to be cleanliness and seem to be associated with EBS, um, uh, I learned and appreciated weren't, in fact, uh, EBS. Um, another example of that, and I think it was actually not in environment of care, but in infection prevention, uh, was around the cleanliness of, like, uh, carts, procedural carts, anesthesia carts, uh, um, and, and the like, and I thought, do the housekeepers clean those carts? And it turns out, no, they don't. It's the clinical staff that actually use the carts who are responsible for maintaining the carts as well. Uh, but it speaks to just like with the kitchen uh, and the uh, food service workers maintaining that space. If we identify that there are roles and responsibilities people have, and then getting confirmation, which I've been able to do, that they actually know that they are accountable for it. But then when you dig further and say, do you have standard work around how you then maintain it, right? Are you, how are you cleaning it? Are you um, uh, auditing them to make sure that you're cleaning them on a frequent enough basis and you can demonstrate that type of thing, that that skill is not one that's um, necessarily one that clinical folks would have. Um, and so we have to work with them to uh, not just say you're accountable for it and that they own that, but then uh, really drill to see how they're demonstrating that accountability and ownership. So trustees, this is Taft Bouquet. Um, just to let you know, um, uh, I was uh, on the Friday, the last day of their um, the Joint Commission's presentation. I attended the leadership session in the morning. I att attended the med staff um, session at lunch. And then I uh, attended the exit interview um, at the end of the day. And uh, I also had... Uh, got to um, interface with the Joint Commission in my role as the Division Chief when they came to, of GI, when they came to our unit. So I, I feel like I got a, a pretty good um, interface with them towards the end of their day. And some of my kind of summary comments and then questions to us are, 
are number one. Uh, I do want to give kudos to Dr. Hussein's and Jamaldeen's quality team. Uh, the work, the rallying they did uh, was indeed complemented by the Joint Commission. Uh, being able to pull the data, pull the process, pull the report. I know, I know Tanvir and I were uh, communicating during that time. I know he didn't sleep that week. And, and, and um, I, I think it is important for us to uh, uh, applaud our people uh, when, when they've worked very, very extraordinarily hard and they were effective in outlining who we are uh, and including our, 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 our warts and, and otherwise. Um, number two, um, uh, and this will, this will sort of come in the phrase of a question as well, there was a lot of discussion about extreme ownership um, uh, uh, across the service services, when, uh, especially when I was uh, talking with Dr. Leo, who was one of the physicians, and he, and he did note that, that one of the conditions of participation is the governing body. And, and, um, and this, this was not a new uh, finding. I, I, I would like Dr. Hussein to give a little bit of reflection and recollection on what he said with regard to the condition of participation governing body vis-a-vis -vis our board and our responsibility for many of these issues which came, came forth. In terms of the governing body, um, the servers did clarify um, for, they always ask as part of our application, who is the governing body? So it is this board of trustees and QPSC and um, in terms of the governing body findings, they're actually listed by COP and number. Um, these point to the areas of structure and accountability. So sort of referencing what Del Vecchio was mentioning, um, clarity around uh, ownership of these areas so that they have better insight into if there's recurrence, why it is happening. Um, so that when you look at the way that these conditions of participation or COPs map, they map onto structure and accountability. Um, and, and, um, and I think they are trying to understand who owns these repeat findings. Canberra, um, I would like to follow up on that. So I recall in um, the fall, late 2018, we did have some similar findings from the Joint Commission uh, at John George Hospital related to um, related to potential potential literature up, yeah. opportunities for patients related to environmental safety, related to our plan for environment of patients at John George. And um, it appears that several of those have not been or continue to be issues for the Joint Commission. And um, so to your point, I guess what has happened is that the, the governing body, which would be us, we listened and we heard that those things were being being addressed in 2018, and we agreed and we supported the the method of addressing those issues. But now it turns out those issues were not addressed, and so the governing body, despite what we 
heard and what we supported and what we intended, we were not effective in, in addressing those issues. Is that correct? Uh, that is that is correct. They were able to um, review the uh, 2018 environmental risk assessment and found that things that said that would be done, such as the shower chairs being removed, the metal bed frames, um, and those sorts of things, they saw they saw that had not been addressed. So, to the question, I guess um, about the governing body, that's what happened. We we said it was going to happen, and we. We um, intended for it to happen, but somehow it didn't happen. Can I speak? Please. Yes. Uh, yeah, I just uh, I, I want to kind of jump back on this. Um, it's a, to a couple of thoughts. One is, uh, yet I mean, I, I hear about the the shift changes and the management changes and and the structure changes being a challenge. And I just want to, and, and maybe I'm a little grumpy because I've been in the city's emergency operations center for the past seven days <laughs> and I'm still here right now. Um, but, um, and I'm guilty of this. I think sometimes maybe we've moved, we move too fast. Uh, and this organization has been running at uh, breakneck speed for the past couple of years with Epic, with the, the rehab center. Um, with all of the changes that we're struggling to do. And, and I think that um, this is, we've, we've stumbled. And, and I think that this, this, these findings are, are a sign that we've tried to maybe do too much too fast. Um, and as a governing body, we've not held ourselves accountable enough. And I'm wondering if uh, it would make sense, um, as we've done when other issues have cropped up, is to have some sort of um, ad hoc uh, uh, working group of this board where we're getting a direct report on potential violations. And I mean, it almost seems like we should have a, a person in this, and I, I, maybe I'm going to speak and sound like an idiot, but every time you see something that would be a violation, um, maybe you know, on a monthly basis, that needs to be reviewed by an ad hoc committee so we can see what corrective actions we're taking before the regulators show up and, and, and catch us. Uh, and I think there needs to be a direct report up to this board to avoid this happening again. And, and I mean, we're being told to hold ourselves accountable for these findings. And I think we have to do something that shows that we are. Yeah, um, I'd like to say, I, I don't know how else to put this. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering what else could have taken you away, Del Vecchio, from the day that they were, the week that they were there. I'm really surprised to hear you weren't there for the whole time frame that this visit occurred. Um, and then second, um, I know I asked Rana for a copy of the report today. I hope that that's something that we can get. Uh, but it, I'm, I'm a little stunned that um, we did not receive a written summary, maybe an executive summary of the specifics um, in our report today. Uh, I, I appreciate, you know, Dr. Herzain, you've done a wonderful job of summarizing the uh, highlights, but um, this is super, super critical to us. And it's, 
reflecting on all of our leadership capabilities here, all of us. I don't consider this just something that Del Vecchio has to do. I'm going to say out loud, I think we need to, because he is the one person that we can hold accountable, we need to communicate, well, what does that look like? Because maybe we just haven't done enough of that. Um, how did we get to today without that kind of um, detail? And just as important, um, I heard a lot of what Dr. Hussein and his team are doing, but again, I'm hearing it for the first time today, and I'm hearing it. I'm not able to look at what is the process, um, what what are those steps, uh, you know, where is the accountability for some of these things, because, you know, I, I'm sure there's a plan somewhere. I'm absolutely sure. But how do I know what that looks like? How do I know what's in it? And how come 25 years of project management that's staring at you all right now isn't being tapped to look at it and say, what else could we do? How else might we do it? Look at Joe. Joe's working in an emergency response team. He's got expertise in that. How come he's not able to look at some of these things that we're doing and provide that feedback. Tracy, Tracy has some other experiences to bear. All of us here have something to offer, but we can't offer it if we don't know what to respond to. Does, does that make any sense to folks what I'm saying? Yes. Dr. Bukit, are you trying to chime in? And I also have a couple comments, but Dr. Bukit, I wanted you to Oh, thank you. I, I was just having problems with mute and being able to mute and unmute myself. Um, I think it, it, so the extreme ownership, the buck stops with this board of trustees. And, and so the governing body I, I ask us to reflect is us. And, and the question is, what have, where, where, with all respect to all of us, where are our failings in this? And, and as they say, every system is perfectly designed to achieve the results it gets. And how did we contribute to this design? Or, or, and, and I don't think that there's malintent. I just think uh, there might not be as much intent as, as perhaps we, we, we should be having on, on, on many of these things. Because, you know, it's a little bit mortifying uh, to get five conditions of participation. You know, I've, you know. I've been a doctor for 20 years. I've probably been through about six or seven of these. Yeah, five is, yeah, you know, I, I asked them in the checkout, um, hey, what do you think about five? And that they did this, it, it, it was very tempered in there. They said, it's a lot. And and uh, I, I'll give you my impression as I, and, and uh, I'll, I'll, leave, I'll protect Dr. Hussein a little bit on this one, but I think he's, because he wants to be uh, so positive for us in, 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 in an appropriate way, is that this, this was actually one of the nicest crews of Joint Commission investigators I've ever been against. They, it, it was actually like they were trying to root for us. I think it could have been worse with a different set of investigators. Um, 
they were so often anyone who was in the room they were they were actually trying to root for us i think they understood our mission and i i fear that we got away lucky with five So, Trustee Hernandez, I kind of wanted to respond in the way that I've been sort of thinking about this, and especially as I've had the opportunity to talk to some of the um, medical staff leadership um, around this, and then hearing, I think, Dr. Hussein's comment around structure. Well, I guess it was a question. So, is our structure what it needs to be? And then, Delmecchio, I think you followed up a little bit on it around sort of the dyad structures, where is it working, where is it not? And so, and I think that was sort of where. I was trying to get to, as a board of trustees, what do we need to know? What do we need to hear? It's great to get updates. It's great to get presentations. But um, when there's things that are critical um, that need to be followed up on, you know, I think we need to know who is accountable and what is accountable. And so one of the things that, um, I mean, for me, the, the accountability is the board of trustees and QPSC, right? Because these are these are quality issues and this is the domain, I think, where these things are being addressed. Um, and so in terms of thinking around how can QPSC um, be keeping a finger on the pulse of these things um, and bringing to light where, you know, is it a structural issue? Is there shared accountability um, between clinical leads and operational leads um, and shared accountability can look different ways, but it's shared, right? And so it can't be, oh, we don't have enough EBS workers or, oh, the, the clinical people forgot to clean off the cart. I mean, it's got to be truly shared. And so to, as a trustee, I mean, we can't go around checking the cleanliness of the carts and the kitchens and, and those. I mean, I guess we, we could. Um, and I, you know, I don't know whether my expertise or is, is useful in the sense of the details, because I, I tend to actually think there's a lot of expertise. It's, it's, it feels more like there's a tightening up that needs to happen or a connecting of some dots. I don't know enough about the details to know exactly where the gaps are, but I think structure, I mean, when I heard structure said a couple times here, I mean, for me, that is key. And I want to know more about that. Uh, when you say that the dyads have the accountability what does that look like and can we hear directly from them or does qpsc hear directly from them and then the board of trustees hears what is keeping them up at night or where it's not working where um perhaps there's confusion about you know i mean when you say dyad it sounds lateral maybe that maybe it should be hierarchical i mean these are just questions i don't know maybe it should be a triad maybe it should be a quad i mean i don't again i don't claim to know enough about the details of it but it seems to me that there, I mean, when you have, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, these surveys are always subjective. So you've got people that seem nice, that could be the hard, the hardest people. Then you've got people who seem mean and they let you go. I mean, you know, I've been through enough of these things where I don't even know if you can say whether we've got off easy or not. But when you have medical management, provision of care, life safety, medical staff, you know, being bright spots, I mean, you know, I, 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 it's not to downplay the cleanliness. It's, it is mortifying to have a hospital that's not, that doesn't, that has areas of uncleanliness. I mean, it, it is. Um, but I'd be a lot more worried if we had deficiencies in those other areas. And, so, and I'm only saying that to say we have leadership within this organization. And I think 
figuring out where we have shared accountability and where, where it's working well, where it's not. And the, these are the conversations that I had with many of the medical um, staff leadership, and I thought they were really productive um, and very reassuring conversations in the sense that it's, it's a lot more about, I think, digging into um, those kind of details. And then from where we sit as trustees, I think we have to demand the information at the right time in the right place. And that's the part where when you say, have we done enough? I would like to see the structure of our committees lend themselves to this kind of thing being able to be surfaced before some external folks come and tell us about it, especially around a repeat finding. I mean, this is something that at some level we should be able to track until it's done, until it's complete, yeah. right? And we didn't do that. So no, we, we also can't guess what's going on. We, we need to have our leadership team be very transparent with us about what's going on too. And so it's a two-way street. We, we, we welcome accountability, but if you don't have all the information presented, that's really difficult. Um, and so uh, again, I, I hold myself accountable for this, but I'm going to say it. We should not have had to wait until today to see a written summary of what happened. We should not have had to wait until today to see a written summary of our response. And, and even right now, it, it's just a conversation that we're able to have. Um, and I, you know, obviously everything with COVID-19 blows all of this stuff out. And, and I totally respect where people's heads have been at. It's just, um, uh, I'm, I'm pretty concerned and worried that uh, this is really going to hurt our brand, our image, um, our ability to provide the kind of care that we're all committed to. And if, if we don't come out of this with a really radical different way of governing and a radically different way of looking at what the information is telling us uh, from month to month about how we're performing, we're going to see this happen again. That's my concern. So, uh, Trustee Shaw. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I think I'm. Yeah. Um, I just want to start by agreeing with uh, Trustee Hernandez, well, in a number of ways, but specifically on um, the disclosure. <clears throat> I heard earlier today in, in committee, uh, uh, Trustee Hernandez remind staff to, uh, again, remind staff to provide some documentation regarding this joint commission uh, findings uh, to her and the other trustees. So I, I really, I would, I, that doesn't please me. I, I, I think as a trustee um, that's named and, and very wise on the part of this joint commission to name us, because that's how you get an organization to take responsibility. That's what they're trying to do, and it's right. It's the correct thing to do. Then we need, so I, I think we need to ask um, leadership to, whenever we're named, we need to receive that document within hours. I, 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 so I'll start with that. Uh, the, my other thought is that, but this is really, to me, a struggle um, 
uh, around quality, uh, around who we're going to be around, how we care about or don't care about quality. Because uh, quality improvement can be just a bunch of words. Um, I think we have incredible talent on board. So that's the good news to win this battle. But quite frankly, we do not have a quality culture in this organization. I, I'm convinced of that. I mean, uh, and this is just more proof of that. So we're in, a, but we're in a battle. And so a cultural battle here, if you will. And somehow uh, I'd like to see the trustees tip the scale on that. And, and then finally related to that, I think we have incredible amounts of static noise um, that the trustees and our leadership deal with constantly. I mentioned one earlier about the sacred cows in the village. You know, you, you can't have an honest conversation about a budget without everyone coming out from every single corner to protect their sacred cow, even if their sacred cow's a lost leader and they're going to go to the press behind your back and on and on and on. This reality causes distractions. It eats up our capacity to lead. And uh, I really saw that this summer with the dance we were playing around the, with the budget, trying to, to, to get uh, some collaboration with our, our uh, partners at the county. And I, it, it just felt to me like it ended up being a fool's errand at the end of the day and didn't really help us get to the really difficult choices we need to have had need to, needed to make in that budget process. It's the same thing with this. How can we actually make major cultural change? And it's about quality, but ultimately on the ground, it's about accountability. So when I walked through the ER a couple of months ago, and I'm not Mr. Detail, I don't generally, you know, walk through my organization's facilities and, you know, take notes and then take them back to the manager. I'm not that sort of person. I just don't care enough, I think. But I saw on the ER floor, ED floor, someone had uh, clearly taken a bag of some something and just dragged it out the front door towards the dumpster. And there was this incredible amount of dirt and grime on the floor. And what I felt in that moment was people don't give a shit. So to me, that's about accountability. And the final thing I'll say is we got to be careful as trustees that we do not become micromanagers. Because that ain't going to solve it either. That's just going to bog down leadership even more. We need to figure out how to hold the people that report to us accountable and let them do their job. But we can't micromanage it. So that, and it's going to be hard not to do that because this is serious stuff. And it's tempting to get into, do, start doing rounds, start commenting on the ED floor and so forth. So those are my thoughts as unbaked as they are. Uh, I've been trying to hold out here just to make sure I can hear from everyone. And, and uh, I want to respect that. So if there are other want to uh, uh, speak, I, 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 can, I can respond generically uh, uh, to others, but I don't want to, I want to hear from the trustees. So I can pause. 
Derek, maybe you can just answer this. What would it take, for example, at John George Psychiatric Hospital to have the Joint Commission come back and not have a finding that patients are at risk? That, that question specifically, but I do, let me, if you don't mind, I want to just uh, uh, honor some of the other comments and, and put uh, uh, that in context, and then I'll respond to your specific question. So thank you. Um, I want to um, honor your accountability by also uh, acknowledging and lifting my accountability. I failed. I think, you know, we, we, we haven't done our role here to produce the quality organization uh, in the culture uh, that uh, Trustee Shequin uh, mentioned. I, I, I think that's absolutely true, and I own that. Um, at the same time, um, I want to say, you know, to the extent that any sort of clarifying messages at any, uh, in any way felt uh, anything other than clarifying or in, in, in anything uh, like finger pointing in any direction for the organization, uh, that is certainly not the way I lead and that's not what I was intended to do. So I hope that didn't come across uh, in that way because that wasn't the manner in which I intended it. Um, you know, I'm going to say this is this is really tough for a number of reasons. Not impossible, but 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 tough. Um, and honestly, some of you have already spoken to it. Um, culture, I don't think, is something you you create overnight. You create over time, and changing it uh, requires uh, very intentional uh, efforts and uh, and pushing through some very challenging things. And you know, sometimes we struggle with that. Sometimes I struggle with that on my own. I struggle with that with the team, and I struggle with that with you, uh, and certainly with our um, our constituents uh, uh, broader, whether it's labor, the county, uh, um, the community, and uh, otherwise. Um, creating, I think, the level of culture that we're going to need to create in this organization that is committed to quality and understand that is is is. Um, it's likely to lead to a fair amount of, of, of strain. Um, and that strain uh, comes out in ways that when it happens, we've got to be able to lean into it. Uh, and uh, I think there's a way that you can be inspirational. I think there's a way that you can be, um, uh, you can slow down on certain things and really focus on these things. But doing those types of things require I, a lot more it's a uniformity and some of the work that we've done that has been a lot has been geared at trying to create more of that uniformity across the organization uh and i think it has come at the expense of um, um in some cases pushback in some cases uh lack of focus and attention on these that you would otherwise have while you work on those things and and so much more let me just say um, my thoughts around the surveys and the survey responses is I, I have had varying degrees of engagement uh, with surveys, whether it's at um, Alameda or at San Leandro or even in the core. Uh, it is my position that I'm the CEO of a system. And as such, I have leaders that are either uh, division-based or unit-based, and I support them. Um, I think one of the challenges in this survey is that the main leader for this area actually happened to be out that week. And I want to say that I feel that as a leadership team, particularly on the operational side, uh, that 
absence. Um, there was there was a actually we talked about this. There was a miscommunication in terms of what part of that person's ab- absence was going to be covered by whom. Uh, to the point that I think we had some vulnerabilities, and I think those played out in not just the survey results but the process of the survey as well. Um, I will deal with that. I hear your point. I will certainly seek uh, clarity from you because I have not comported myself terribly different than I have in other cases. And so I don't think that um, anything I did differently in this case resulted in the result of the survey itself uh, or during the process, but certainly the work and the evidence of the work uh, that was called out during the survey, I would, I would I will absolutely uh, uh, own that. So now to your point, Trustee Jensen, around uh, findings at John George, I will say, um, surveys are a little bit tricky in the sense that I, I honestly don't, I haven't had the bandwidth or the, um, the uh, uh, procedure of following every single finding of a survey and myself demonstrating that every single piece of it has been uh, followed. Often I, like you, uh, uh, or perhaps a little less, um, rely on the leadership in that area to follow up on it in partnership with our quality leaders and others. Um, I both do that piece as a kind of prep work for the survey and then look for that evidence when the survey is completed. So having findings in a survey that then in a resurvey don't uh, or demonstrate that we've, we've passed is a sort of indicator for me that everything was taken care of. Do I do other things to, to um, uh, validate myself? Uh, yes, uh, but not every single piece. And obviously this would be an example of that. At John George, you may recall we spent millions of dollars and uh, reduced census for a prolonged period of time that really impacted the organization and the community while we were gradually going through each of those areas doing that work. And I can tell you, I was there watching some of that work, but again, I didn't watch every single element of it. And so I, like you, was disappointed to find that there was some piece of this that was uh, um, yet undiscovered and yet unresolved, I would say. So now, what I'm trying to do is work closely with the leadership there to uh, um, shore up what I have uncovered is a vulnerability that a lot of our processes across the organization have relied on um, giving kind of a clarity uh, or at least a layer of clarity uh, to people around accountability and then assuming from there that they know what they're doing to actually uh, execute on that accountability. And that is not leading to high reliability. It leads to reliability when you focus on it intently and you're having months of intense action that really shore up a vulnerability and deal with it. But then when you turn your attention somewhere else, if you haven't left them with that discipline to do that work, then it just gradually erodes sometimes. It doesn't happen all the time, but in some cases that does happen. So it is kind of going back to say, have we, have we taught people how to fish versus bringing them the fish or, you know, coming there and fishing with them and then leaving and they're starving. Uh, so I think that's a vulnerability that I've discovered. Uh, I have worked with the operations and clinical leadership to then shore that up and then uh, further clarify what the role of quality is when they're doing validations, that that isn't the check, that's the check of the check. Uh, so we are adding another layer uh, there. And my expectation is that that will then create the, the much greater likelihood that we won't have repeat findings at John George. Um, will it completely absolve it? I honestly, as I sit here today, can't tell you that because 
it is a challenging environment. And I do think to uh, Trustees Bouquet's uh, comment, uh, various surveyors appreciate that. They understand the, the complexity of the patient population that you can't necessarily expect that you're going to have somebody who may have a, uh, a, a behavioral health or mental challenge um, always in a space that looks like you would want it to look, you know, like 24-7. But you should be able to demonstrate through your processes that you are, are respecting uh, uh, the patients, you're balancing that uh, need to respect their rights and privacy with creating a safe and clean space for them to be in, um, uh, and that you can demonstrate that you have timely follow-up, and that means that you have processes and evidence and space to say, you know, this, this, these crumbs that you found on this floor in this room weren't here six hours ago. They may have been here an hour ago, but they weren't here six or 12 hours ago. And you have to be able to demonstrate that. Otherwise, the conclusion is even uh, without uh, real evidence that, uh, to the contrary, that all I can tell you is I see it here now. And you need to be able to demonstrate to me that you're dealing with that in a timely fashion. So, um I hear your points. I think there's some work that we can do together, but obviously uh, um, I report to you. You hold me accountable. I will bring to you a, uh, a proposal um, uh, based off of the conversations that I'm having with the leadership team around how we're showing up this work and maybe how we can uh, create um, a, a different uh, approach to my own oversight and then uh, the demonstration of evidence to you around um, uh, how these things are being addressed. And the last thing I'll say, and again, obviously uh, open to any other follow-up if I haven't addressed your questions, is Trustee um, uh, Shikwin, I appreciate your point. Uh, I'll speak to both your comments and Trustee Hernandez. Um, um, at the time, I was actually uh, on a, a panel um, uh, talking about equity in maternal uh, health um, uh, in Denver, and I left because uh, the three days into the survey that, that I have had been here for the scale or the magnitude of the findings um, uh, that I was aware of at that time did not rise to that level, uh, at least from my own vantage point, which I, um, I did rely on both my view and that of the team because I was involved in some other work, including um, the Whipley stuff with Trustee uh, Peterson and working with the county on some of that stuff. So I was not always physically on site during the survey because I didn't have the luxury of canceling everything when we had some important meetings that we scheduled to advance some other important work that we're doing. But I trust the team and I, I, I believe we're in good hands. I still do. Uh, I, I just appreciate now that uh, the, the, that, that vulnerability of the main person who's uh, accountable for the acute care not being here, the coordination and the um, uh, teamwork around making sure that we were uh, shoring her up uh, was left a lot to be uh, desired. And the last thing I'll say is um, uh, to you, Josh, Trustee Sequin, uh, point taken. I will give you, I, I gave you an update that Sunday night. I worked with um, uh, uh, Dr. Hussein to kind of do a summary uh, for you that I thought was appropriate for uh, something you could synthesize. Uh, two days after the survey ended, um, we did not give you the full 80-page report. I apologize for that. I will do that in the future. Uh, and then just to the point about uh, any sort of synopsis, we would have, and we were certainly intending to do that uh, for this meeting before COVID took over. And we worked with um, Dr. Bouquet and uh, got, an, got an agreement that in light of all of this and so much work that folks are doing in the command center and uh, trying to support this work, that that was to, to spend the time trying to get a report together 
um, and then submit that and go through that was not the, the, the best use of folks' attention at the time, and I apologize for that. doesn't make any excuse. I just want you to understand that ordinarily that wouldn't have been the case and we would have done that for you. But I hear your points and I take your feedback. Trustee Amanda. Uh, hold on. Oh, yeah, I got it. Um, so I want to be bold here and just say that in the future, um, if we ever get another Joint Commission visit, which we will, I think the entire executive team needs to be present. I mean, short of the birth of a baby or a horrible illness. I don't care what it is. I think you all need to be present and accounted for. And I certainly have been at conferences with where speakers, you know, cancel and what have you. I would not let anything other than those most critical issues keep you and the senior leadership team away from a joint commission visit, especially now especially here forward, because for me, this is a wake-up call that says we need to change the way we're doing things. And first and foremost, it has to be the way you hold your senior leadership team accountable for how they behave around these visits and the consequential conversations that need to happen afterward need to be very thought out and very thorough, and they have to come with what is the action plan to correct for this. As I look at the document, I, I've had a chance to come back into our board vantage and take a look. There's a lot here. Um, I am certainly aware that others are able to go through it and go through a lot of detail, but um, it's just so tragic that we've got this competing issue now with COVID-19 mixed in to try and address all of this. It, it's mind boggling, but I'm very glad that they gave us more time. Having said that, um, I, I, I would like to know, uh, aside from Tanvir, uh, Tanvir, how big is your team? How, how many people are involved in responding to this? And do you feel ready uh, for when they come back, I believe in April, is what you said the new deadline would be. Are, are you okay with that? So um, portions of my team are consumed obviously with COVID response. I basically said for the quality department, there's three essential things, COVID, Joint Commission, QIP and Prime. So basically all other functions have stopped and I've divided them up. Um, as Delvecchio mentioned, um, we've gained some clarity that my team can validate what is and is not happening, but cannot across the organization do the, all the corrections. Um, and so, as I mentioned, I have the patient safety, the quality regulatory affairs team rounding multiple times a day. They take pictures and reports and they're actually shared with the entire executive team who have um, and we've discovered that some of the items that were cited hadn't yet been corrected, but do, you know, the direction was very clear to all the leaders of the facilities that that's not okay. So many of those things have been corrected. Um, 
I think for there to be a sustainable solution to this, which the Joint Commission will look for, is we need to get that clarity on the operations side about what is their daily work to ensure this does not recur. Because it that, that has to become habitual to maintain high quality safe operations without anyone looking, whether it's the quality department or external surveyors. And that's the culture and that's the daily work that has to be built. Um, I'll, I'll add to that, sorry. Okay, uh, I'll add to that. Um, just a point of clarification, the, the, um, the report now is due in April. The surveyors have at least um, postponed any survey uh, follow-up or any survey activity until May, I believe. Is that is that correct? Okay. Uh, so, so until May, but that is just context. That is not the framework in which we are responding. In fact, one of the things that has been a little bit of a, um, um, I hate to say reprieve, uh, uh, as it relates to COVID-19, at least where we are right now, is, as I mentioned, we've cleared out uh, spaces in preparation for the, uh, the the impending, or at least what we're told is going to happen. But that has also allowed us to do some of this work that would have been a, even more challenging to do outside of COVID-19 when we're trying to maintain uh, routine operations. So um, a lot of my uh, rounding and rounding with Gassan and, and uh, uh, rounding with Luis and him out at John George and other uh, places has been to ensure that people understand just as Tambir has kind of laid out the priorities for the quality team, those same um, uh, priorities exist for the, the rest of the organization. So to your question around the skill of the individuals who are working on this, it's, it's, it's a lot of people because it's across all the sites and it's dependent on where the, uh, the work is. But um, uh, um, uh, Janet has been really leading the work at uh, San Leandro, Luis at uh, um, um, George, uh, but, uh, but the collective across the organization. And I've, I spent a vast majority of my time at Highland being the larger place and the place with a lot more spaces and, and, and work for this to happen and are constantly feeding back both talking to local staff and leaders, um, making my own observations, uh, asking for follow-up on what's happening with certain uh, parts of the plan. But more importantly, and the thing that we can't necessarily even put in a corrective action plan because it takes a bit longer, um, doing that work to deal with the, the structure and the infrastructure um, uh, that, that would lead to the, the uh, reliability of the work that we're doing. And I'll tell you, it's, it's going to be hard in many places because some of this is one of these, like it's a mirror, like it is a, like it's kind of, what do you call it? Um, like a red herring or something when, when you, or, or I mean, what do you call it? The broken window. That's what it is. A broken window. In fact, like some of these things where you see like, you know, cleanliness in a space or uh, um, yeah. in a, in a department, that what I've seen in many cases, not all, but in many cases is a, is evidence of when you talk to the leadership that there is not the degree of alignment and uh, collaboration, understanding of processes and feeling that those processes are working for them. Uh, it's people throwing up their hands and being frustrated and understandably so, but not, un uh, but unacceptably so. And that we have to um, lean in, uh, not allow people to be frustrated, but also making sure we're being responsive to folks. So that work, I gotta say, you know, 
I wish it was going to be easier, but it's going to take some time. And there's some differences of opinion that um, of how things are structured and who should be responsible for what. It's, we have a lot of smart people in this organization who are quite opinionated around what they, uh, how they think things should work. And it cuts all across the organization, whether you're talking EBS and frontline staff and management there, uh, the emergency department, nursing staff and physicians there, uh, the OR, a couple of places uh, where, where these things were identified. Uh, to varying degrees, you have greater alignment um, and others a lot, lot more work to do. Uh, um, I just wanted to, just in closing, that's, that's great and I appreciate your attention to all this, but in the retrieve, if we've gotten a, a brief reprieve from responding to the Joint Commission, that's, that's good and it'll give a chance to be very, for staff to be very thorough. But I have to say, it's just, it's disturbing that we're facing an infectious pandemic and we have findings that relate to our ability to fight, to control infections. That's very disturbing. And I, I regardless of the entrenchment of the, the management or the, the degree of which the, the culture um, may or may not be able to be changed, we have to figure this out immediately or we're, we're done. Uh, this, as soon as these, these infection control measures are critical to stopping the pandemic in our facilities. So I don't know. I, that's all I can say. I, I, that's what we're here for. And, and you're going to have to figure this out and figure it out really quickly. I, I take your, your comments, uh, and uh, yes, thank you for them. Any further comments? Um, I appreciate uh, all of the trustees' comments, and um, Trustee Shaplin, I think, you know, to your point, uh, which had not occurred to me that if we're named in something to receive it within hours, um, that that had not occurred to me. But I think that's exactly the kind of thing that I feel like as a board of trustees, we need to be very crystal clear on sort of what our expectations are. And particularly now that we're finding ourselves in a situation of having repeat findings, I do think we also have work to do to ourselves to decide um, or to come up with sort of what are those things going to be that we're going to um, be demanding or asking for without, to your point, um, you know, becoming micromanagers or getting into the week. But I think for me, structure is everything. And so maybe that's just my bias about about things. But, you know, if if, um, if there are areas where there's complacency and, and it has to do with the way that the accountability structure is, um, usually it has to do with the way the accountability structure is, is uh, framed or is being implemented. Um, and so those are things I think um, it sounds like a big task ahead of all of the leadership and of the quality team. Um, but this isn't something that one team can go around to all this huge complex organization and fix. This is something that has to be, um, I think we need to understand as trustees structurally who is responsible for what and how these, how these items are going to be followed up and completed and closed. And we have to have some level of confidence around that. So I think it, I, I do, um, you know, at the risk of, you know, I know I just said we shouldn't be micromanaging, but at the same time, I think it has to go beyond sort of just saying we, we have one employee and that's what we're going to hold accountable. Yes, we know that. But I think at this point, it's like, I think we need to have some more benchmarks for accountability as we go. And I think 
Liz, I just like that example that of you saying, this is what I expect when X happens, right? And I think we just need a, another layer of that. Um, that's my, that's just my, you know, one person's um, take on it. But um, I think we have to get a little concrete. I appreciate you saying that. And I also, I also feel like maybe we need some help. The trustees, we, you know, uh, had a long conversation about coaching and senior staff a couple of years ago. And I've always thought maybe we need to um, get our heads around our roles a little more concretely. So I don't know what that looks like. I, I am kind of feeling tonight, at least we need some help on the part that's our responsibility. And yep, the, you know, the culture set right from the top and it is on us and it's on the um, employee that we, um, that reports to us. Um, also, the fact that, um, you know, that, that it's been brought up that we should have known an hour, you know, as soon as this happened. But to me also is that do we to understand that when something like this happens, I think trustees can call a special meeting or not. We have to know if that's even possible, that's feasible, if we need to gather together and do it or wait almost a month to have this brought on the agenda to discuss. So especially if it's a governance issue and they, we might have things to say in the corrective plan because it's our our role. So, uh, you know, just consider those things and to see that if we need to convene, then we need to convene. That's, that's a great point. Any other trustees? Staff have any further comments? Okay. All right. Thank you, everybody. COVID nineteen. Dr. Jamaluddin. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I do know that it's it's getting late, and I want to be very sensitive to that. I, I, I do know that uh, that was an important topic, and we needed to make sure we spent sufficient time in that, and so. Uh, I will try and go through this very, very briefly here. I've got uh, Dr. Jamali and, and myself, and then also Dr. Baden, who I, I hope is, is still on, online. Um, uh, so we will all kind of take a few pieces of it just to speak to it at a high level. Um, again, we have some slides that I, I believe uh, our IT general counsel extraordinaire is, is also going to share the screen. Uh, but we, we are, we're continuing to manage the situation. I mean, there's no, you know, I don't think there's anything uh that i need to expand on here outside of the fact that we're continuing to very closely monitor the activity around the notice be put out by the cdc by cdph by uh, uh california Department of Health, uh, by cha by so many different entities where we're trying to make sure that we're staying abreast of all the information that's being shared at all levels and as you all can i'm sure have experienced and can understand it's been changing almost hour by hour and there's just so much going on in every aspect of this and so as a result of that, and in a way to try and manage and mitigate the situation, we've, we've we activated our uh, incident command center, uh, you know, several weeks back. Actually, we activated it uh, early on when we were preparing for the, disembark uh, the disembarkment of the uh, Princess Cruise Line. And so uh, Dr. Hussein, in fact, was the incident commander pretty much every single day for those several days as we were managing that, uh, that uh, event and that activity that was happening. And so 
uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, things obviously started to, to continue to evolve and we started getting additional information. We started seeing things happening across the globe, but equally here in the States. And so we decided, you know what, we need to be better prepared as an organization. We want to make sure that we're getting ahead of this because uh, it would be extremely challenging and difficult to uh, be in a position where we're responding or reacting to some sort of an, uh, uh, an, an increase or an influx. So we activated our command center. The command center operates uh, seven days a week, uh, 24 hours a day. And so we have a rotation. Uh, in fact, my colleagues uh, here, Dr. Hussein, Dr. Maladin, uh, and Dr. Tornal Bennett, who was the incident commander today, share that role with me. Uh, and uh, we have other leaders in our section chiefs where we have our logistics chief uh, that's managing all the supplies and how we're managing our labor pool and how we're making sure that we have the supply, the, the, that we have everything we need to make things happen. We have a planning chief uh, and a group that's leading that. In fact, Dr. Baden is part of that planning team. And that's really looking at, you know, how, how are we going to, to prepare and position ourselves for anything that may be thrown our way. And then we have our operations chief, which uh, Janet McKenna's or CNE is, is one of those section chiefs, along with Dr. Barbaria, along with Richard Espinoza, making sure that operations themselves are continuing to be managed and how all these three come together to ensure that we're moving the organization forward. Uh, in the next slide, uh, we just talked a little bit about the resources. Uh, again, we've, uh, we've established a, a uh, communication is an important aspect of this whole process and so uh, one of the things that we have seen and, and really uh, you know experienced over these last several weeks is the fact that uh, you know there's a tremendous amount of information some of it real some of it unreal some of it you know just all sorts of things happening in social media and regular media and everything and so we wanted to make sure that uh, we were also very responsive to communicating with our staff and sharing with our staff as much information as possible to ensure that they were uh, up to date on what we are doing as an organization, not only to position ourselves to care for our patients, but also equally important what we're doing to protect them and protect all of our workers and all of our, our staff. And so uh, we wanted to make sure that uh, we, we can do that in a real-time basis. And so every single day we put out a, an, an update uh, that is coming out of the command center, highlighting the activities of the command center, what has been discussed, what the ongoing priorities are, how we're positioning ourselves, and equally sharing some of the data and some of the uh, 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 facts uh, as far as what we're experiencing as an organization that we shared earlier today in Delvecchio's report, as far as how many people have we tested, uh, how many positives have we had, what is the status of that, and so on and so forth. So again, in that uh, update we provided, it's available on our intranet. Uh, so not only do we have an email, we also have the intranet, uh, intranet, which is internal for our employees. We also have our external facing internet page, where we're also loading up with a tremendous amount of resources. Uh, moving on to the next slide, uh, we have our, uh, that's a, just a sample of, as I just indicated, uh, what the updates include, all the different variables that we try and capture in those updates, and how we're, we're making sure that, uh, that uh, you know, we're, we're updating our staff as we have many changes that are happening and I know a little bit later in this presentation Dr. Baden will talk about supplies more specifically masks and protective personal equipment our PPE uh, there's been a tremendous amount of, of talk about that recognizing that there's so, so, so much variability around how different organizations across the region and across the state and across the nation are handling the use of PPE recognizing national shortages recognizing uh, different practices and so uh, different interpretations. So it, it's been very, very dynamic. And I know that Dr. Baden, obviously, as one of our infectious disease providers uh, and one of our uh, subject matter experts, it's just been so, uh, so, so 
difficult to ensure that everyone is on the same page and everyone has a clear understanding, recognizing that everyone is equally reading some of these articles and some of this media, and they're coming back with, pushing back with, well, so-and-so is doing this, and why can't I do this? And so managing that entire process has been extremely challenging. But again, uh, the work of the incident command, really it's proving its effectiveness, having this coordinated effort and approach for communication. Uh, and then we, lastly, we have, as Galvecchio mentioned, and really at a high level, there's been a lot of activity. I mean, obviously with, a, uh, uh, with the, uh, uh, the slide where I'm looking at that slide that says in important contact numbers, uh, what we're looking at here is sharing information with our staff, recognizing even the story that Dr. Bouquet shared earlier uh, about his personal uh, experience and struggle with, with uh, you know, balancing and managing, you know, his responsibilities as a provider, but also his responsibilities as a father and a, a husband and, you know, just a, a member of society. And so we wanted to make sure that uh, we gave our staff uh, uh, access to different information, not only to our employee health department, but also our employee assistance program where they can uh, receive support, confidential, no cost support. It's a tremendous benefit that we have as an organization and equally other benefits that uh, Del Vecchio alluded to in the sense of, of leaves and, and ensuring that the staff have everything they need uh, in order to manage this, this, this very, very challenging and, and, and uh, important situation. Uh, so with that, uh, that's at a high level. Uh, with that, I'll go to the next slide here and I'll have Dr. Gamadine speak to uh, really some of the specifics and the clinical aspects of the process. Thank you, thank you, Louise. So uh, when, uh, when the story started to come from, uh, from uh, Italy and, uh, and then from New York, so we had to really act fast. Mm -hmm. uh, one is uh, to enhance the knowledge and uh, and uh, you know support our workforce uh, so we we uh, we started to share with them as much as possible the latest information in terms of uh, of uh, their self protection in addition we worked on uh, limiting the access to all our facilities so we stopped all visitation uh, and especially to our post acute uh, like sniffs, we made the visitation totally uh, limited and screen all the visitors. Uh, the same thing we did with our acute care facilities. Uh, and uh, we uh, started to enhance our telehealth uh, infrastructure. So we started to have phone visits for all our ambulatory care uh, visits, screening the patients, uh, making sure that they don't have to come if they don't have to come. And this enhancement started to happen at the national level with support from the CMS. Uh, and uh, uh, as, as we are right now, I think we are uh, triaging almost every, every patient who comes to the ED in order that in case they are UIs, we, we put them aside to protect uh, other patients who are coming for other reasons and also protect our workforce. So uh, currently, uh, we are working on uh, more of a surge uh, access or capacity. Uh, we have also addressed our our testing. I'll let Dr. Baden talk a little bit more about it and uh, and about uh, like the specificity of the clinical aspect uh, of uh, of the COVID nineteen. But as as we are right now, from an epidemiologic standpoint. Uh, it seems that we are still at the beginning. We do not know exactly when it is going to peak, 
the estimation, I mean, we're waiting for the California uh, uh, Association to come with, uh, with, the, with the modeling. I have been using modeling used in other states. It's, it's going to take, it's going to be, it's going to be weeks uh, for the peak to happen. Uh, so uh, that's why it's extremely important for us to ensure that we have access for care for patients who do not have COVID-19 and to ensure that our patients in the ambulatory care setting also we are connecting with them and delivering care for them. So uh, with that, maybe I'll go to uh, supplies. She's going to speak to supplier. Yeah. Uh, Rachel, are you are you on the call? Can you open her? Yeah, she's been on mute. Yeah. I am on the call. Yeah. I'm in my office, so I'm remote. Uh, Rachel, I'm can here. you speak about the supply, how we're doing, and with the masks, and how we're working with the PPs? Yeah, absolutely. So the command center has been active on a day and even hour by hour basis in in sort of in monitoring our supplies, um, and and so that process has really been solidified, just so we can keep tabs on exactly um, our run rate and what our needs are across the organization. Um, we have um, been tracking the masks, the gowns, and the hand sanitizer very, very closely um, and trying to meet the needs in real time across the organization as the supplies start to run low so we can quickly, quickly replenish them. Can go to the next slide. Currently, um, we are um, abiding by the CDC guidance as well as Cal OSHA's guidance on the personal protective equipment um, so uh, we have a series of instructions for the staff um, and we were lucky to receive additional supplies from the uh, strategic national stockpile for PPE. So currently we're using, you can see on here, the white masks, which are from the um, strategic national stockpile um, uh, in, to, to mask um, uh, you know, patients at entry if they have um, respiratory symptoms or fever. We're also using them in some care areas for forward-facing staff. Um, we're reserving the N95s or the respirators um, for use only in airborne circumstances. So that's for our patients under suspicion for COVID or patients with confirmed suspicion. So we are still employing the most aggressive um, PPE strategy for caring for these patients. Um, so it's full airborne contact and droplet precautions, which is what the CDC re recommends if you still have ample supply. Many organizations around us have backed away from this full PPE. We have yet to do so. We're awaiting our guidance um, from the CDC um, before we make that move. Um, and then the last bit of masks on there are just surgical masks, um, which are reserved for procedures and in the operating room. Every single day, we are asking the questions about what's right in terms of uh, this PPE question. This is by far and away the thing that um, creates the most anxiety for staff. Um, and so every day we're asking what's right and what we should do. We get a lot of pressure about making changes based on what is happening across the country. Um, and what's published in the lay media, um, but we get our guidance for this from the CDC. Um, <clears throat> I'd be happy to take any questions about this particular issue because this is such a hot topic, um, but we feel confident at this moment that we have enough PPE to sustain this strategy at this time. Uh, excellent. Thank you, uh, Dr. Baton. And then uh, moving on to, to, the, to the next slide, and certainly after we get done with this, just a couple more slides, uh, we can open it up for anyone, uh, any questions, and Dr. Baton, Dr. So if Martin, you guys want to go to the next slide, I want to talk about testing oh, and triage. So currently we've set up, oh, 
Do you want me to talk about the triage? Or, go let ahead, me talk go about ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So currently our testing is somewhat limited. Um, let me do testing and then we can do triage. Um, we currently are only testing patients who are admitted to the hospital with suspected COVID-19. Um, but we hope to expand the testing in the coming days, um, hopefully in the next day or so, to include um, certain symptomatic healthcare workers. And this is what the CDC currently recommends. They recommend for priority number one for testing, if you have limited testing, to test your inpatients. Um, and, and the next priority is to uh, test your symptomatic healthcare workers. And since we do only have, uh, we do have somewhat restricted testing, all of our testing right now is being done to the Alameda County Public Health Lab. Um, and we're hoping to expand that as, um, as allowed um, by them and then to other resources should the need arise. Um, this is our picture on the slide of our triage tent, um, one of our triage tents. This is the one, this is the one at Alameda Hospital. Um, we have two tents and then a special room at San Leandro where we're currently triaging patients. So when they enter our healthcare system at the ED entrance, they're triaged based on their symptoms. If they currently have respiratory symptoms or fever, they're triaged um, to our tent where they're evaluated. If they need to be um, further evaluated in the emergency room, if they're unstable or they need further diagnostics, they're then taken into the emergency room. If they're stable and can be discharged from the tent, they're given instructions to go home and self-isolate um, and to return if their symptoms worsen. These tents went live this week, and I think it's working beautifully. Um, I have the most experience with the Highland tent, but I think what this has allowed us to do is to separate our symptomatic patients from the rest of our ED patients um, at triage, which I think is what nationally and internationally has been recommended as one of the mitigating strategies for this epidemic. Excellent, thank you, Rachel. Uh, and, and in the final slides uh, that we have here, I uh, just uh, really wanted to speak and highlight, uh, you know, that we have uh, uh, certainly we've experienced some tremendous community support. Uh, I believe as Delvecchio mentioned earlier in his report, uh, we've had many things that have been donated from meals to, to different aspects. Uh, but uh, we, you know, we, it took us a little while to kind of work through all the logistics, but uh, just like many of the other organizations across the region, uh, they established a, a mechanism and a process by which they were receiving donations from, you know, different uh, groups and entities that wanted to really support and help, uh, you know, the cause and what's happening at the healthcare facilities. And so uh, we have established our, our donation, donation uh, uh, receiving area, which we're leveraging our Fairmont campus. We have a large warehouse in the Fairmont campus. And uh, so we're using that as the, as the location, centralized location, where we're receiving all of the donations that are being brought to the facility. Uh, for two purposes. Number one, to make sure that we're appropriately accounting for everything that's being brought in, but secondarily to also, and equally important, to also ensure that we're doing a quality check to ensure that these are the supplies that we truly need, that they're the appropriate types of supplies uh, before we then distribute and cascade to all of our facilities as appropriate and as necessary. So again, we have some information there as far as where we're communicating this, where we're providing this type of information uh, on our intranet, intranet, uh, our foundation website. Uh, the foundation has been intimately and uh, actively involved in this process. And so again, it, it's been it's been phenomenal. I'll thank you. Yeah, and then I just want to uh, add uh, three points to this. So one, um, uh, a special thank you to um, Trustee Bouquet and uh, Trustee uh, uh, DeVries for really helping to, uh, one, uh, bring resources uh, through your connections, uh, and two, uh, to um, 
uh, uh, forward on uh, potential op uh, options uh, uh, that were uh, helpful to us as well, although uh, the latter uh, may not have panned out because it was just too expensive for us. But uh, the, the help with uh, trying to make that happen and connecting us uh, is, is very much appreciated. Uh, and then the last thing I'll share, and Trustee um, DeVries knows this, um, uh, the Oakland hospitals uh, trying to work together and in conjunction with the uh, mayor's office to uh, just kind of had a uh, uh, discussion where um, we, we indicated that if there are substantial uh, donations that uh, come in uh, that are available to all the hospitals uh, in Oakland that uh, Highland or AHS would be uh, the uh, receiving point and that we would work with our, our partners to uh, distribute those things. So we, we put out a pitch that you know, if people have uh, access to uh, uh, billionaires or multi-millionaires and uh, they are bringing in stuff that we, we would very much welcome that ourselves, uh, but also be happy to uh, be the, con uh, the conduit for um, disseminating them across the, the, the area as well. So uh, that's, that's something we have offered and uh, was well received. And then the final slide, uh, it gets to uh, just, uh, again, a resource uh, as far as our websites and how we can start accessing information and what's available for not only internal but external stakeholders through this process. So with that, um, we we're happy to answer any questions you all may have, uh, myself, Dr. Baden, or Dr. Damali. Question. No, Becchio, this is Taft. How are you? Good, thanks. Um, so, uh, you know, thank you. I sent you that email. Um, and I guess my question, is there a way that we're acknowledging these all, uh, all donors, be it on our, and I haven't looked because I'm not on Twitter, but on our Twitter feed and the like, uh, uh, not, I guess I'll, I'll just say my children's school principal called and they gave us 640 N95 masks. And right now there's a, there's some other philanthropic uh, people so it's possible that we we may be getting another two to four thousand and ninety five and ninety five masks, and I think this is a great opportunity. And uh, apologize for my ignorance, Delvecchio. Are we doing something like that to, if you will, encourage good citizenship? <laughs> yes, yes, and I think Louisa was sort of uh, acknowledging some of it. Uh, working uh, in concert with the foundation, uh, putting out some social media appeals, but also some uh, thank yous. Um, when we have, have been able to capture the moment, and I know you forwarded some, and I don't know if we've actually, um, I have to check with Terry and the PACE team to see if we've, we've uh, moved those forward for, for the um, uh, the uh, school uh, administrators uh, appeal, but in, in the other case where we got the 1200 mass, I know that, that there's been some, um, we actually even had local media um, uh, come in. We did an interview uh, to acknowledge that work. So uh, yes, uh, and we'll, we'll look to do more. Thank you, Davecchio. And I just want our, our I, I want our citizens of, of the East Bay to, to be acknowledged openly by one of their their central components of their uh, community, us, and make it easier for them to give. And uh, I really appreciate you on that regard. Likewise, and I, 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 I will follow up on uh, the other elements. So thank you. I have a hashtag, Delvecchio. Oh yeah? Oh, okay, we'll sidebar. Don't, don't tell everybody. Offering good citizenship. That's too long, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good at this stuff. <laughs> All right, thank you. Trustee, have any questions? 
I want to say just a comment about the social distancing. It is probably the most effective uh, practice to, to contain the, 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 uh, the epidemic. Uh, however, it has other unintended consequences, and that's poverty. And poverty also will lead to poor health and to increased death. So, uh, I mean, there is a balance here that, you know, uh, at the governance level that, you know, we have, we have to see how, how, we can, how we can model this because uh, the impact, the social impact of, of, uh, of distancing and shutting down uh, has also like an unintended consequences. And that's, you know, discussion higher level uh, but, but this is, you know, the hospital now is a place where people meet and they have to come to get care and we try to do everything that we can while we're doing uh, this, this situation. So um, just in terms of surge preparation, we are looking at all capacity, including ventilators, accessory ventilators, best practices, and uh, hospital capacity throughout our system. I just want to make this comment. Yeah, I think the point is really well taken and not just in terms of wage loss, job loss, and um, poverty, food insecurity, housing insecurity when we were already in the midst of a homelessness crisis, um, but also um, the mental health impacts of uh, isolation, anxiety, stress, fear, um, you know, and all of the different messages that are bombarding folks. And so um, certainly I know that I'm sure that John George and our other um, behavioral health teams will, if they're not already seeing folks sort of decompensating or destabilizing a bit, that that will continue to also be a concern. So I think it's stress points on multiple parts of the system and multiple parts of our community and, and the folks that we take care of. And so um, definitely a time to sort of pull together. Um, and it's really reassuring to hear this last report, especially. Um, and so thank you for that. Thank you, Dr. Baden. Dr. Jamaluddin. Yes, Dr. Bouquet. Can you okay. share with everyone, uh, I apologize, I was cutting out. Can you share everyone with that quote that you shared with me the other day from Governor Cuomo? I'll, I'll, I'll help you, you sent it to me. Socially distanced, but spiritually connected. <laughs> <clears throat> Dr. Jamaldin, um, or Dr. Baden, I, I um, am aware that the hotel opened in Oakland um, by the airport for, for um, homeless, basically right now it's for homeless um, individuals who have been, who have been confirmed positive for COVID-19. And so I, I think there's only been one person there right now, Joe could probably confirm, but I'm wondering if um, you've thought of how we would discharge someone who is not showing, who is not needing um, intensive care for COVID-19, but they are homeless and they could be discharged to this place. I wonder how, if, and how you're working um, on a plan for that. Care manager, VP or care manager has been working with the county on, on access for patients who or for person under investigation who need to be quarantined into a specific area. So uh, I, I think as of today, we, we started actually to have access. Uh, I see 
uh, I wasn't the incident commander. I think you, you were, and we started to have access for patients who are testing positive or who do not need hospitalization and they are under investigation. We are working with the county on on making sure that they 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 are uh, they are well well uh, into a place they cannot transmit the the, the infection. So, so I'm sorry. Just to continue. So that this um, op option seems like it would be really effective for patients who who were about to be discharged, so that they're not going back. If they are positive, they're not going back into an encampment or somewhere else where they're more likely to infect others. Yeah, I'll um, uh, just share a little bit. Uh, for uh, this, as a county and others sort of work to stand this up, we had situations where we had patients who fell into this category where they weren't uh, uh, positive or maybe even weren't uh, meeting or having enough symptoms to be tested, uh, but were of a, uh, a concerning nature enough that we couldn't um, uh, be able to get them to meet criteria to go into either shelters or board and carers who have been really careful uh, now because they don't have the ability to segregate uh, um, um, a guest uh, uh, in a meaningful way. So. Uh, we took it upon ourselves to uh, reach out in the community and we found uh, hotels uh, who were willing to take uh, uh, patients of this nature. Um, uh, we, we had two mishaps uh, in the sense where we told patients like, you know, you're not, we don't think you are, um, are positive, but we are concerned about like, let's say your respiratory infection or something. And so we want you to go to this place and, you know, we're paying for it, but we need you to self quarantine and, um, and then a patient not complying with that or an individual not complying with that and being asked to leave the hotel. Um, and we not really having a good, uh, ability to handle or control that we were doing things to support them with, uh, food and other things, but we don't have anybody there to sort of have martial law and make them stay in a room and not have a guest or anything like that. Uh, so we're hoping that uh, this resource will be, uh, will have a little bit more of a reliability uh, for keeping people uh, appropriately safe, uh, uh, like as you described, and minimizing the chance that we will have some of the mishaps we've had before. Trustee Jensen, this is uh, Rachel Baden. I just want to assure you that um, until this process was formally in place, we have been erring on the side of admitting folks who couldn't safely isolate at home because that is our duty to our community. So if we couldn't ensure a safe isolation at home, whether they the patient was unhoused or lived in a congregate setting or some other thing that precluded them from safely isolating at home, we, we have erred on the side of just admitting them until we could rule out COVID. Um, and safely get them back to our community. I just wanted to say that the protocols for the hotels that the county has taken over and with the state um, don't necessarily require an unsheltered person to to be exposed. They, they, they there's a list of protocols. Uh, you know, at risk, 65 or older, underlying medical condition, etc. Um, and there's a possibility the city will be standing up um, uh, several trailers uh, that the state's going to provide that would also allow us uh, flexibility to move really you know, extremely vulnerable unsheltered persons, you know, into a safe environment that we're we're working on as well. 
Um, so, and, and last, um, you know, the hotels are empty. And so I think that uh, local hoteliers are looking for, this is an opportunity to both bring their staff back to work um, and, and use their rooms for a good cause. And, and I, one in particular who's owned six facilities reached out to us and uh, I shared with Del Vecchio and with Kaiser, um, you know, they're, 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 just, they're wanting to help out both for um, first responders, for, for, um, for uh, emergency and medical staff who may be exposed. So there's a lot of goodwill. I think there's also a lot of synergy um, considering the situation for the hotel industry right now. So the clarifying question that I had was actually about um, can persons under investigate, or is it only for persons who've been tested that can go to this hotel, or can it be someone who didn't quite meet screening criteria for testing, but you're asking them to self-isolate and they're unhoused, and then we'll go there as well, because we're just trying to get a sense of what that environment is going to be. So those patients, we tend to test them. If they, okay. if we tend to test them, so they okay. become automatically PUIs. Okay. Yeah. Although if we're, I thought we we're restricting we're tests not, to inpatient. Yeah, now, we're, so. we actually, yeah. we're not testing we're not those individuals. Correct me if I'm wrong. If somebody comes to Brian with upper respiratory tract and homeless, are we not testing them? We're not testing them unless they're admitted to the hospital, Gasan, at this time. We're, uh, we're instructing them to self-isolate. So this is a very fluid thing. We, in the last several weeks, have been admitting them. So they did bond to a group of people that were tested because we didn't have a, a, a mechanism in place in the community to have them self isolate but now that the this hotel is open and this has been streamlined which has all been really in the last 48 hours these individuals will likely not be tested under our current um, testing um, guidelines but will be instructed to isolate in this hotel space um, in you know based on our non-testing guidance which means for uh, three days and um, after their fever has remitted and their symptoms have improved in addition to seven days since symptom onset. So those are the current CDC guidance for individuals who have suspected COVID but are not tested. Thank you. Other questions from trustees? Trustee Jensen. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, that, when Dr. Baden talked about um, symptoms, it just, I, I had, was wondering as everyone knows, there's often, especially for travel in the last week or two, depending on where you're going or where you're coming from, there were there were temperature sensors that were used to um, um, to allow people to fly or to travel or to do other things. And I wonder, I'm not sure if this has happened in the United States, but I think in other countries, perhaps in Asian countries, there's been um, temperature sensing of employees. And I don't want to go there. I don't want to say we need to do that, but of course it's um, something that may have been considered by the command center. So, that's a good question. Okay, so that's a good question. It was definitely something that was considered by this uh, command center, and it has been something that has been recommended in, in several areas in the United States where the epidemic is, is soaring. So, for instance, the CDC issued that guidance in Seattle. They issued that guidance, um, to my knowledge, as well in Santa Clara County, and I believe that's also um, 
being in consideration in, in New York. They, our county and our public health officials have not directed us to do so, um, likely based on our level of, of positivity within the community, but it's something we're definitely keeping a close eye on um, and we'll, um, course adhere to that guidance when it if and when it, it it comes to us but it's definitely something that's being employed in certain parts of the country at the, um, but not in our county at this time thank you my knowledge most acute we are not allowing any visitors unless you know they are cleared by a uh, temperature uh, I mean if, if they really have to come they are temperature testing i think we got no, no, those the, the visitors are restricted employees are having to report. employees employees yeah, have that's that's the yeah. yeah employees have to be tested in the sniff uh yeah uh, well i'm getting my temperature checked by the fire department every morning before i enter the eoc and um we are trying to track down uh more infrared thermometers um, that's been one of my pain points the last few days um, because we want to have all of our first responders be able to do a temperature check uh, when they when they go on duty especially um and you know we've developed the level one two and three health screenings for our employees for when we do have people coming back and i do believe if we can get infrared thermometers uh we certainly made the purchase show up we'll, uh, I think be doing more expanded temperature checks for employees I think it just I think it really makes sense so if we go in that direction we know who to ask right we'll ask you where you got your infrared uh, thermometers uh, yeah I've placed orders uh, yeah in, in strange places we'll see which one <laughs> show up yeah but you can see um, Santa Clara with the kind of aggressive things they did, how they flattened the curve, how much. Right. So we can learn from the folks who are, who are a little ahead of us and doing these things of what we might want to preemptively do as well, so hopefully. Other trustees? Okay, we're ready to adjourn to closed session. Well, we have the staff written reports. Were there questions on any of the written reports? Okay, then we are ready to adjourn to closed session. So the closed session will be for the uh, items as stated in uh, the agenda. Uh, the meeting room will stay open, uh, so you're free to continue uh, enjoying the meeting room. Uh, the uh, Board of Trustees will return to the meeting room at the close of the closed session, give their uh, final report, and then at that point the meeting will be closed. So we join this breakout room? Yes. Okay.